The following is presented by the Center for Political Innovation, CPI, Building American Socialism for the 21st Century. To learn more, visit cpiusa.org. So glad you're here. Sorry about the shaking there. Just getting the camera in order. Welcome, everybody. So glad that you're with us tonight. Be sure to hit the like button. Be sure to hit the subscribe button. Be sure to hit the notifications bell. I am so glad to have all of you here. So welcome, everybody. Uh, We are a very special community here, a very, very special community here. Being able to do these live streams brings me so much joy. I got to tell you, just being able to get on here and engage with all of you about politics is in and of itself a rewarding experience. We've been doing this, I mean, it started a year before the pandemic. It intensified with the pandemic, uh, and we've just kept going. The pandemic has ended, and we are still here, and we are marching ahead. We are the city-building tendency. We want a government of action that will fight for working families. We say out of the movements to the masses, we are marching ahead. And it's going to be an amazing stream tonight, folks. I've got so much to talk to you about, so many exciting new developments. So crush the like button, crush the subscribe button to make sure you get those notifications uh, and hit the, the, the subscriptions bell, crush the subscribe button, crush the notifications bell. Be sure, be sure to leave comments and, and we always want to have a lively chat, dare to struggle, dare to win. Um, it's going to be great tonight. Uh, so many great things to talk about. Um, it is the best of times. It is the worst of times, as Charles Dickens once said. It is quite, quite a time to be alive. Um, Hugo Chavez show. Right? Writing it down. Uh, quite a time to be alive. Um, and we've got so much to talk about. So much to talk about. So I'm glad that you all are here. Um, And uh, it's going to be an exciting stream. As you can see, we have the lovely bookshelf. Uh, My wife uh, is is out. Uh, She's celebrating with some other other folks. And uh, that gives us the bookshelf. We have access to the living room here in my lovely Brooklyn apartment. And um, wow, so much is going on. So much is going on. So hit the like button, hit the subscribe button, hit the notifications bells. I'm already writing down the super chats for the second half of the show. That's how it works. I've got plenty of unnamed water beverage. And so, folks, we're going to get right into things. We are going to get into right into things, right into things. Tonight, I'm going to make a number of very special announcements, one that I think stands out above the others, which will be ultimately the focus of my opening remarks, but there'll be a number of announcements we're making here tonight. So first of all, um, all right, Catholic social teaching. First of all, first things first, um, I want to give a shout out to the John Brown volunteers. The John Brown volunteers are now in Texas and I miss them. And I'll tell you, they're just a phone call away, but I miss them so much. I, I miss them from the bottom of my heart. Uh, I love the John Brown volunteers and the work that they are doing uh, in this community in Texas. Uh, They're doing really, really great work. Um, And if you want to, you know, give them some support and help support financially the campaign of the John Brown volunteers, all you have to do is just go down below and click on that PayPal button. It's, It's down there in the link. Hit the PayPal button. You can send them 
a contribution. All contributions are welcome, no matter how small, no matter how big, if you want to help them do their work. Um, and that's very, very important. So shout out to them. They're doing great work out there in Texas. Um, they're, they're really, these are people who have, have given everything. You know, uh, one of them graduated from high school, he got in his car in Illinois, drove to New York and became a John Brown volunteer. One of them was living in Pennsylvania, wasn't too happy, wasn't doing too well, sold his PlayStation, sold his Pokemon cards and said, this is my new life. I'm going to become a communist. I'm going to give my life to the revolution. He became a John Brown volunteer. Uh, there's, there's folks from California. Uh, who have joined the John Brown Volunteers. There are folks from uh, Patriotic Socialism. There are folks from there are folks from from Long Island. You know, um, there are folks of different backgrounds. I, I mean, it's it's really amazing. And the John Brown Volunteers are doing some really really important work, and uh, we want to give them a shout out. So, if you want to support them? There's a link down below. That said, um, we have just seen the news that Julian Assange, Julian Assange has had a stroke. I don't know if folks are aware. He's in Belmarsh prison, but they have just ruled that he can be extradited to the United States. British courts have reversed themselves, said that he can be extradited to the United States to stand trial in Alexandria near Washington, D.C. And Julian Assange has been tortured after being held up for years in the Ecuadorian embassy. He was finally thrown out of there. At the time that he was thrown out, he was taken to Belmarsh Prison. Unbelievable. Unbelievable what they have done to Julian Assange. And what is Julian Assange's crime? He created WikiLeaks. And WikiLeaks was a venue for whistleblowers to expose war crimes. WikiLeaks revealed a number of things. It revealed that Crimes against humanity were being committed in Iraq. It revealed some of the things being said in diplomatic cables. Um, I mean, so much. It was, it was a platform for whistleblowers. Julian Assange is not a government official. Julian Assange never had a security clearance. Julian Assange isn't even a U.S. citizen. All he did was create a, a vehicle. Writing it down. All he did uh, is create a, a vehicle. A, a website, a platform for whistleblowers to step forward and expose crimes. And in the process of doing that, he has faced all kinds of, of repression, and now they want to take him to the United States. And anybody who believes in freedom of speech or freedom of assembly or the freedom of the press should be outraged about what's happening to Julian Assange and standing up against it. Um, and the fact that, you know, Julian Assange is one of those issues. It's one of those issues that shows you who's for real. It's just like Force the Vote by Jimmy Dore. There are a lot of people talking in the name of socialism these days. There's a lot of people talking like they're progressive. But at the end of the day, if you don't support Julian Assange, you are not an enemy of the imperialists. You don't stand for Julian Assange right now. You are not an ally of oppressed people around the world. And writing them down. And it, it's just one of those issues that shows you 
that shows you who's real and who's not. Legitimate anti-imperialists want war crimes to be exposed. Legitimate anti-imperialists want there to be a platform through which crimes against humanity can be revealed. Legitimate anti-imperialists are happy that it became public information that the uh, the Democratic primary was rigged against uh, against Bernie Sanders. But fake leftists, those who preach socialism but practice fascism, those who wave the red flag to oppose the red flag, social chauvinists, social imperialists, those forces do not support Julian Assange. Now, of course, we don't agree with everything Julian Assange has ever said. We don't, right? We don't. We obviously, he said quite a few things over the years that I don't agree with, that you don't agree with. That's not why they're trying to kill him. That's not why they've been torturing him for so long. They haven't been doing it because of what you disagree with or I disagree with. They haven't done it because of anything. They haven't done it because of anything other than him exposing their crimes. The same government that tried to murder Julian Assange is about to get their hands on him. The British authorities are about to hand Julian Assange over to the very government that talked about assassinating him. This is a threat on freedom of the press. This is a threat on freedom of speech. And the results, the implications of this case are massive. At this point, what they're doing to Julian Assange opens the door to retaliation against any journalist or any news media platform that publishes something the U.S. government doesn't want you to see. Yes, if you're a government official, it is a crime for you to leak classified information, right? And that's, that makes sense. But if you're a publisher, it is not a crime for you to publish something that a source gave you. That is not a crime. That is not a crime by any means. But now they want to make it a crime. They want to use the Espionage Act, an archaic law from World War I, to make it a crime to publish things that the government doesn't want you to publish. And you know what this leads to? This leads to a situation where before you can publish a news story about the military or about government activities, you've got to call up the State Department and be like, hey, uh, am I allowed to publish this? Uh, can I publish this? Uh, it's not classified, is it? And they say, oh, you're about to publish that? Well, it's classified now. And if you publish it, we're going to throw you in jail. We're going to torture you like we did with Julian Assange. You have to be against this. The fact that CNN is not standing up for Julian Assange, MSNBC is not standing up for Julian Assange, the fact that that Fox News is not standing up for Julian Assange shows that they are on the side of imperialism and that they have no intention of using their journalistic platform to expose the imperialists. They have no fear that they could face the same fate as Julian Assange because they're not going to do their job. They're not going to challenge the powers that be. They are part of the very structure. They are part of the very structure that Julian Assange is exposing. The fact that Hassan Piker has not only said that he won't defend Julian Assange, but said that if you do defend Julian Assange, you're a fascist. It's funny, is, is advocating freedom of the press something that fascists generally do? Is that like one of the big fascist causes, freedom of the press, right? Adolf Hitler, he said, when I come to power, I shall ensure that journalists shall be able to print classified information. 
you know, is that what Hitler said? You know, I, I'll have to watch Triumph of the Will again. I'll have to watch a documentary about Mussolini again. I missed that part in the doctrine of fascism, right? That fascists are always big fighters for freedom of speech. But it shows you, shows you what side these folks are on. But we knew that. You all know that. We, yeah, but, but it shows you, again, as I said, quoting Charles Dickens, these are the best of times. These are the worst of times. But but folks, but, 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 but that is not, again, so many important things to talk about tonight. That's just the tip of the iceberg. We are just getting started. We are just over 12 minutes into this stream. We have just hit the tip of the iceberg. The next thing to talk about, folks, today I appeared on one of the most widely listened to African-American radio programs in the United States. I appeared with Dr. Wilmer Leon, my good friend, on Sirius XM radio, Urban View. And we had a half hour conversation about the vice president of the United States. And why is it that my good friend, Dr. Wilmer Leon, the nationally syndicated radio host, uh, had me on his radio program on Sirius XM to speak to his very big audience. And that interview is gonna be on repeat all week, by the way. It'll be on repeat all week. All kinds of people who listen to Sirius XM, uh, you know, they're going to hear what I have to say about Kamala Harris. I also got to talk about Nicaragua uh, and, and the developments with Nicaragua recognizing Taiwan. But I, I got to tell you, why is it, why is it that I appeared on this radio program? Why? What, what happened? Folks, there's a reason. The reason is that everything I wrote in this book Everything I wrote in this book, published in September of 2020, before the 2020 election, everything I wrote is being proven to be correct. I called it. I called it. I called it. I called it. I had the idea to write this book because a very important Marxist uh, scholar, academic, came to me and told me who Kamala Harris's father was or is and said, you really ought to do something with this. And this person didn't just tell me about who Kamala Harris's father was once, not even twice. He told me three times on three different occasions. He made a point of telling me who Kamala Harris's father was and why I needed to investigate this, why there was a story there. So I started digging into who Kamala Harris really is. I dug into her record as a prosecutor in California. I dug into her family history. I dug into her personality, and I learned some crazy stuff. Some crazy, crazy stuff I learned. And of course, I shared it with all of you. And I published this book, Kamala Harris and the Future of America. And you know what? There's a lot of people that said, oh, that's the stupidest thing you ever, why would Caleb do that? He's racist. That's stupid. It's a conspiracy theory. And the words speak for themselves, folks. The Washington Post quotes one of her staffers describing her as a bully who subjects people to soul-crushing criticism rooted in her own lack of confidence. People have described a toxic environment working in the vice president's office. 
four of her top staffers have resigned, including Simone Sanders, the CNN, Black Lives Matter, Bernie Sanders, rock star. She's resigned. And five months ago, we had the very same revelations. And during her 2020 presidential campaign, the director of her state operations came and described, described her office the same way. And everyone, pretty much everyone who's worked with Kamala Harris and has the courage to say so is telling you what I'm telling you. Now, we know one of her staffers tweeted out, just so everybody knows, I work at Kamala Harris's office and I love my job, you know. Uh, a tweet that sounded like it was under duress. Um, but other than the, you know, the tweet that came out that was under duress, this pattern is repeating itself. And from the beginning, I have warned you about who Kamala Harris really is. And I've used that to tell you something about socialism and how the socialist movement in the United States desperately needs to change. I have talked to you about Kamala Harris's office when she was the California State Attorney General and how she tried to keep people in prison. The state of California's Supreme Court ruled that the prisons of California were unconstitutionally overcrowded. It was time to start letting people go. And Kamala Harris came forward and said, oh no, we need to keep nonviolent offenders in jail, nonviolent offenders, drug offenders, right? We need to keep nonviolent offenders locked up because we need their cheap labor. Folks, I've told you about how not only was Kamala Harris notorious for supporting the death penalty, how she tried to execute Kevin Cooper. Kevin Cooper was facing death by lethal injection. Death by lethal injection. And the governor of California wanted DNA evidence to make sure Kevin Cooper was actually guilty of the crime. He wanted to make sure that if it was time to execute Kevin Cooper, that he was really guilty of the crime. And Kamala Harris got up and said, no, 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 no. We can't have, we can't have DNA evidence. Fry the bastard, fry the bastard. Her office tried to prevent entering DNA evidence into the record. You want to talk about evil. That is evil, my friends. That is evil. And of course, she was overruled. They did acquire DNA evidence, and they stopped the execution of Kevin Cooper. Bolsheviks versus Mensheviks. But if you want to talk about a lack of ethics, that's Kamala Harris. Furthermore, I might as well just throw this out there. When asked about this case by, I think it was the New York Times, Kamala Harris said she, quote, feels really bad about it. Oh, that's nice. She tried to kill an innocent man, tried to prevent DNA evidence from being entered into the record so she could kill an innocent man. Um, and um, in response to that, she feels really bad about it. Well, that's so nice. That's really good that she feels bad about it. But then she blamed the lower level attorneys. No wonder her staff doesn't like her. No wonder her staff doesn't like her. Uh, you know, she threw them under the bus. Oh, I didn't do it. It was the lower level attorneys. This is who Kamala Harris is. And you, as part of this community, if you've been watching these streams for the past couple of years, you know all of this. You know all of this. But now because of our work, because of our work, there are millions of people who know this. Millions of people know this. 
we have kept beating this drum and we have not surrendered. We have not surrendered. We have kept beating this drum. We have raised this awareness and it looks like a section of the ruling class is turning against Kamala Harris. There is a faction in the ruling class that is turning against her. What's going on in the media right now? Because, you know, these, these cl claims about Kamala Harris's staff, uh, they've been following her her whole life. I mean, before she was ever in office, during her campaign, her, her campaign staff said she was toxic. Uh, during, during, you know, five months ago, people in her office said she was toxic. But now the fact that this is being raised and the fact that the media is jumping on board with this, uh, the fact that even some like pro-democratic party outfits are starting to question Kamala Harris. This means there's a section of the ruling class that has woken up and is saying Kamala may not be the one for the job. And I don't think it's a coincidence, mind you, that they're waking up at the time there has been a war crisis in Eastern Europe. At the time that uh, they were accusing Russia of threatening to invade Ukraine, there was just the incident at the Kerch Strait. And they realized that Kamala Harris, who ain't so well, is going to be the woman with her finger on the nuclear button and that the stakes are getting higher in international events. And I think there's a section of the ruling class that says, OK, you know, we might hate Russia. We might hate China, but we really don't want to have World War Three. Um, and uh, there is a section of the ruling class. There is a section of the ruling class, it appears, that is starting to turn against Kamala Harris. And I'm going to tell you, folks, this book had a lot to do with that. You may think that's crazy, Caleb. Go to Amazon right now. Go to Amazon right now. Tell me how many books you can find about Kamala Harris. How many books have been published about Kamala Harris? Now, you will find her autobiography, The Truths We Hold. You will find a children's book written about Kamala Harris. Uh, you may even find there has been like one academic biography published since the election. That's all you'll find. You'll also find this book. That's all you will find. And it's bizarre. I don't know if folks are old enough to remember, but I remember in 2008 when Barack Obama was running for president. And when Barack Obama ran for president, we learned all about Barack Obama. We learned about Barack Obama's mom. We learned about Barack Obama's dad. We learned about Barack Obama's elementary school. We learned about Barack Obama's dog. We learned about Barack Obama's pastor. We learned about Barack Obama's shoes. We learned about Barack Obama's haircut. We learned about this person that he shook hands with who shook hands with. They vetted Barack Obama like you wouldn't believe. Barack Obama got vetted beyond belief. They, they were just constantly investigating him. We learned everything there ever was to know about, about Barack Obama. But Kamala Harris, who's now next in command to be president, all it takes is old Joe having a heart attack or old Joe finally admitting he's got Alzheimer's. That's all it takes for Kamala Harris to be our president. And nobody knows anything about her except for us, except for the people who've read this book. Nobody knows anything about her. And we have been beating this drum and we have been raising the awareness. Now, isn't it interesting that nobody knows anything about Kamala Harris? Isn't that interesting? I'll tell you, it's interesting and it shows that there are some very powerful people who are protecting her. There is a fight going on behind closed doors. Look, I told you how she almost, in this book, I go over in great detail how Joe Biden did not want to nominate her as his vice presidential running mate. He tried not to. Six hours before she got the nomination, I hope you like it, Kurt, six hours before she got the nomination, 
Kamala Harris's Twitter account unfollowed Joe Biden. Six hours before the nomination, she unfollowed Joe Biden. Then the Democratic National Convention schedule came out and there was a spot for vice presidential nominee and there was a second spot for Kamala Harris. It was very clear that Kamala Harris was not going to be the vice presidential nominee. But then, then at the last minute, Joe Biden stepped up and nominated her. And furthermore, one thing that was raised, and this was just the icing on the cake, I mean, I mean, it couldn't make it more obvious what was going on, is that when Joe Biden was accused of sexual assault by a number of women during the campaign, including Tara Reid, who accused him of rape, Kamala Harris was asked, do you think Joe Biden is actually guilty of sexual assault? And Kamala Harris responded, yes. She said, yes. She said, I believe women. Kamala Harris said that Joe Biden, our president, is a sexual predator. She said it. And after she got the nomination, she never recanted, never recanted. And in her nomination speech, and this is the icing on the cake, in her nomination speech, as she's accepting the nomination for vice president, she said, quote, I know a predator when I see one. I know a predator when I see one, followed by an awkward silence. That was a threat on Joe Biden. That was clearly a threat on Joe Biden. If there ever was one, that was a threat on Joe Biden. Joe Biden didn't want to nominate her as the vice president. He tried up into the wire the last minute. He announced he gave himself a deadline. He was nine days behind his own deadline to nominate her. And then at the last minute, he nominates her. She never, to this day, has never recanted her claim that Joe Biden committed sexual assault, never recanted it. And in her nomination speech, she said, quote, I know a predator when I see one. Awkward pause. There's some stuff going on behind closed doors. And now we have a situation where the danger of a new world war is hanging over our heads, where there's, you know, there's an escalation with the USA moving military forces and allegations with Russia and a, a Zoom, you know, meeting, a, a video conference call between the commander in chief of the United States and the commander in chief of Russia. And there's a section of the ruling class that is going, okay, all right, you know, I, I mean, the stakes are getting higher and we don't know, we don't know if we can, we can trust this woman near the nuclear button. Folks, we did this. We did this. We did this. We started this. Other people, we got this ball rolling. Don't think this didn't have an impact. Don't think this didn't have an impact. Folks, this has had an impact. This has absolutely had an impact. And now is not the time for us to stop, folks. I believe there's a very good chance that we could save America from Kamala Harris. We are on the brink of saving the country from the vice president. We are on the brink of doing it. The fact that sections of the ruling class are turning against her right now, the fact that her staff is stepping, stepping down, we are on the brink of having a real impact at this point. You know, by raising what we are raising, by telling it to bigger audiences, we are having an impact. Now is not the time to stop. We can save humanity from 
the nightmare of a Kamala Harris presidency, right? We're not here supporting the Democrats. We're not here supporting the Republicans. We're saying Kamala Harris is dangerous. She is a dangerous, sadistic narcissist uh, who is very excited about the idea of killing people. She subjects her staff to very cruel treatment. She laughed about, about you know, locking up the parents uh, of children who are truant from school. She's a dangerous person, and she shouldn't be the president of the United States. Uh, that's all That's all we're saying here. You know, I assume Joe Biden would replace her with another Democrat. That's not, you know, we're not even saying, but but we are we are on the brink of having a real impact here. So I want to give a shout out to Char Char Darling, who's in the chat right now. Char Char Darling is a John Brown volunteer. And Char Char Darling has volunteered as a John Brown volunteer who's out in Texas with the team. Char Char Darling is going to start recording an audiobook of this book. And we are going to put it all up here. Look, if people listen to the audiobook and don't buy the book, that's fine. I'm not interested in getting ri- I'm not going to get rich off of this book. Well, who knows what could happen, but I, I really doubt I'm going to get rich off of this book. But Char Char Darling is going to make an audiobook of this three-part essay um, of, of Kamala Harris and the Future of America. Uh, she is going to make an audiobook, and we are going to have the audiobook, the full audiobook of this important piece of writing is going to be available on this YouTube channel for everyone to listen to. And that is an amazing contribution. So shout out to Char Char. Great work. We are so excited to see what you come up with. And that's how amazing the John Brown volunteers are. Right. I mean, they are they are they are there to help this project. And uh, I wanted to mention that that's not the big announcement, though. That is not the big announcement. I know many people were probably thinking that was the big announcement. That's a very important announcement. And we love you, Char Char. We love all the work that you're doing. Uh, and we are really grateful. I mean, check out the video that just went up that, that Madeline and Keaton, who are both John Brown volunteers, they made a great video based on my, my new article about Joe Biden's Democracy Summit. They're doing great work. So we, we shout out to all the John Brown volunteers. That's not the big announcement. That is not the big announcement. That is not the big announcement. That's not the big announcement. The big announcement is related to something much bigger, something much bigger that is going on right now. Now, folks, the manual of the Center for Political Innovation is called We Are City Builders. That's what it's called. It's called We Are City Builders. And I wrote a book before that, a compilation of essays uh, that I published uh, in 2018. It was called uh, City Builders and Vandals in Our Age. And that book that that was published, it put forward a thesis. It put forward a thesis about socialism, what socialism means in the 21st century, but also a thesis about the United States. And it's a very, it's unique. That essay You know, I worked a lot on the opening essay to City Builders and Vandals in Our Age, which is republished in the, uh, thank you, Christian. I'm really glad you like it. Uh, I I put a lot of work into that essay, but there's a reason I did it. There's a reason I did it. I don't know if folks have ever read this book, but it is one of the most important books I've ever read. The Assassination of Julius Caesar, A People's History of Ancient Rome by Michael Parenti. This is an amazing book, and it has won all kinds of awards. In 2004, it was the Political Science Book of the Year. Um, you know, um, yeah, uh, I I will happily I will happily encourage anyone to read this book by the great Michael Parenti. 
Um, and it tells the story of Julius Caesar. And Julius Caesar, Julius Caesar, a lot of people look at that story that Michael Parenti developed, and he did years of historical research. Julius, uh, uh, Julius Caesar, you know, was the you know, leader in ancient Rome, a military leader, the imperator of Rome, um, who was assassinated in the year 44 BC, BCE, I think we say, before Common Era. But Michael Parenti is an Italian-American who is very proud of his heritage, and he spent years doing historical research into Julius Caesar and his assassination. And he published you know, this book, which I, I cite very heavily in my book, um, you know, We Are City Builders. I, I cite it very heavily because he makes the point that Julius Caesar, Julius Caesar was killed because he fought for the proletariat. He fought for the proletariat. And on top of that, Julius Caesar was killed because he had the potential to change the nature of Roman society. Michael Parenti shows that Rome was moving in one direction. The Roman Empire was a reactionary empire that was holding back historical progress. It was built on slavery and plunder. And it was moving in a reactionary direction. But Julius Caesar was somebody who within this dark, evil empire realized that it was time to turn the ship around. He realized that it was time to turn the ship around. And he was actively taking steps to rescue Rome from itself. That's what he was trying to do, right? The Roman Empire was an empire built on slavery. It conquered various nations, kingdoms, and from these kingdoms, it, it extracted tribute, slaves, uh, raw materials, and it built roads connecting the empire, and it had a monopoly on global trade. Rome was the middleman in all global trade. That's actually why, uh, you know, you may probably heard the expression, all roads lead to Rome. Well, if you were in one part of the Roman Empire, you couldn't build a road to another part of the Roman Empire. All roads lead to Rome, meaning, meaning that there is only one middleman in global trade, that the Roman Empire sat at the center, at the center of a global empire, and it was going around, and at the point of a spear and at the point of a sword, was extracting slaves, and it was extracting tribute from various nations. It was building itself up. It was building itself up at the expense of nations in Africa, nations in Europe, nations in the Middle East, etc. That's how the Roman Empire functioned. And slavery is a highly inefficient system. Slavery might be efficient within a household because the harder the slave works, the whole household kind of benefits. However, when you have big, huge plantations, you have big, huge mines, slavery is very, very inefficient. Why? What motivation does a slave have to work? Not much. You know, a slave, a slave works because he doesn't want to be beaten. A slave works because he doesn't want to be punished, deprived of food or what else. But for the most part, slaves have very little motivation to work. And so in order to keep slaves working, you have to have somebody who's an overseer, who's driving the slaves to keep working. But an overseer can only keep track of maybe 30, maybe 100 slaves. So if you've got thousands of slaves, pretty soon you have to have overseers 
who oversee the overseers and make the overseers or driving the overseers to, to, to keep driving the slaves. And pretty soon, you have to have an overseer who drives the overseer who drives the overseer. Slavery is hugely inefficient. It is a very, very, very inefficient way of, of running an economy. When people have no motivation to work other than avoiding punishment, and one overseer can only oversee a certain amount, the bigger your mines get, the bigger your plantations get, the more and more inefficient society becomes. And that's what was happening to Rome. The bigger the Roman Empire got, the weaker their production capacity became. The bigger, the bigger their plantations got, the more, the less food they were able to produce and grow. The bigger their mines got, the less, the less minerals they were able to extract. This is the problem, the problem with the slave economy. However, throughout the ancient world, in places like Tunisia and Carthage, in places like Persia, in places like Gaul, you had the birth of a new system called feudalism. And under feudalism, the way it works is the serf has an obligation to the noble, to the landowner, and they work the land, but they pay their rent or taxes to the landowner. But then what's left over, the difference they get to keep. Feudalism is much more efficient than slavery because there's a motivation to work. They get to keep what's left over after they, after they pay their rent or taxes to the landowner. So all over the world, you started to have feudal societies that had a more efficient system of production. But the Romans maintained their slave system. They maintained their slave system, but they simply went around to countries with a more advanced system and extracted and robbed from them. And that's what the Romans were doing. The Romans were going around the developing world and going around the ancient world, going to societies that were more efficient than they were, going to societies that had more productive economic systems than they did, and stealing from them and preventing those more advanced societies from connecting with each other, maintaining a monopoly on global trade. The Roman Empire, the Roman Empire was a reactionary, barbaric empire that was built on holding back history. Holding back history by maintaining the system of slavery where human beings own other people. That was the foundation of Rome. Rome is a military society in which People owned other people. And the way slaves were acquired was through war. And it was a brutal, ugly society. Now, trigger warning, I'm about to tell you some really awful things. But, you know, people think they know how awful Rome was. People think they know how awful Rome was, but they don't, okay? And I'm about to tell you this, trigger warning, this is really, this is really awful. But this is the reality. People think they think about, you know, the, the, the Roman Colosseum, people being fed to the lions. You got no idea. In ancient Rome, the head of every household, right, the, the, the Roman citizen, the man who owned all the slaves and had wives and children, the head of every household had, had the right to commit infanticide. When a new baby was born in the household, they would take the new baby to the head of the household and he would look at the baby. And they had this ritual where they looked at the baby and if the baby was deformed in any way, or if the, emperor, uh, the, the, the head of the household didn't like the baby or he didn't have enough money to take care of it, for any reason, it was totally up to the head of the household, the baby would be thrown into a river or left to die in the middle of the woods. Infanticide, infanticide, killing babies. 
So it was something that happened every day in Rome. Every day in Rome, a baby you know, would be born somewhere and the head of the household would look at it and say, you know, I don't like this one, throw it in the river. Can you talk, can you talk about more evil than that? That is, that is a level of evil that we can't even comprehend. Can you imagine, you know, you know, a baby being ripped out of the arms of its mother and, and killed like this? This is a level of satanic evil that we cannot even comprehend, right? I mean, this is, you know, and you talk about people being fed to the lions, you talk about, about public executions and torture. We are talking about some real evil that took place in Rome. Um, and, you know, um, it was a trauma that hung over society. You know, the, the founding myth of ancient Rome, I don't know if people know this, is about, you know, Rome is named after Romulus. There were two brothers, Romulus and Remus. And, um, you know, there were two brothers that, uh, you know, they, they were born and their father didn't want them. And, and so he left them to die by the river. And the story is that these two brothers were raised by wolves. Wolf, uh, a, they called it a she-wolf, a female wolf, uh, came and nursed them and they were raised by a pack of wolves. And that was supposed to be what made them so mighty and strong was because they were raised not by human beings who have, you know, compassion, kindness, empathy, who needs any of that? They were raised by wild predators. And so these two brothers became mighty, strong conquerors because they were less like humans and they were more like wild beasts. Now, people talk about how this is a really important part of the of the legend of Rome, because the fact, you know, the fact when a, when a baby is just left to die by a river, it doesn't live. But the fact that they made up this legend, this story where a baby was cast out and somehow was raised by wolves, this was them trying to deal with the trauma, the pain, the pain of what they saw in everyday life. How, how awful was this infanticide ritual that the Romans engaged in? It was just, it was a, it was a horrendous ritual. And it was them, it was a way of processing the pain of, the, of having this story of a, of a baby that's left to die, but then grows on to be great. But what's the moral of the story? The moral is kill your inner humanity, kill your compassion, kill your kindness, kill your solidarity with other human beings and be a predator, be a wolf, right? That's, that's the legend uh, uh, that, that was the foundational myth of Roman society. Um, and, you know, it sounds a lot like Ayn Rand, right? It sounds a lot like the Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged, right? Have no love for others, right? You know, the virtue of selfishness. That was, that was the Roman story. And in Rome, if you had a baby, if a baby was born that was deformed in any way and you didn't kill it, you could be hung. They hung Roman citizens for the crime of not committing infanticide. Did you know this? That if, if in ancient Rome, if you, if a baby was born into your household and you, and it was deformed in any way and you did not kill it, you could be hung. They hung people for not committing infanticide. That's how evil this society is. Rome was an evil society. It was absolutely an evil society. But Rome was also the place that the most important class in all of history was born. The most important class, the final class of human history was born within the most evil society, one of the most evil societies that has ever existed. The proletariat, the proletariat the class with nothing to lose but their chains and the whole wide world to win was born in ancient Rome. The word proletarian comes from Latin. 
In ancient Rome, there were a lot of slaves. It was a majority slave society. Then you had landowners. Among the landowners, you had patricians and plebeians. But in addition to that, you had a whole other group of people. This was a group of people who weren't slaves. Nobody owned them. But they didn't own any land either. They didn't have any property. And they sold their labor power in order to survive. Many of them were Greek. Many of them were Jews. Many of them were Persians. Many of them were Africans. And they were people who sold their labor power. And they were called proletarians because all they owned were their children. Right? Your children were considered to be your property. So if you were a proletarian, if you were a proletarian, all you owned were your children. And the proletariat emerged and existed. Thank you very much, Free Assange. The proletariat emerged and existed in ancient Rome. And when you have proletarians in your society, you have things that you would not normally have. For example, you have unemployment. Slaves are never unemployed, but proletarians can be unemployed. Slaves are never homeless, but proletarians are homeless. And pretty soon, even though Rome was the richest city in the entire world, even though Rome was scraping in wealth from all of Europe and scraping in wealth from North Africa and scraping in wealth from the Middle East and Mesopotamia, even though that was happening, When people visited Rome, they would be shocked and they would say, why are there all these homeless children walking the streets? There would be beggars on the street, homeless children. There would be mobs of homeless children walking the streets of ancient Rome. Why? Because their parents were proletarians and their parents didn't have a job. And there were, there were loads of homeless children walking the streets of Rome. There were homeless people. And these proletarians in Rome, these proletarians in Rome, they got together and they would go on strike. It's in Rome that you have the first strikes that happen. And the proletarians, the pipe fitters, usually they were skilled craftsmen of some kind. They could do a job that, that an ordinary slave couldn't do, that you had to hire somebody. They were bricklayers, masons. They were, they were uh, metal workers, blacksmiths. Uh, they were you know, pipe fitters. They were, um, they were some kind of skilled craftsmen. And these proletarians would get together and they would say, we are not going to work until we get a decent wage. And they would, they, would, they would go on strike together. What we now call labor unions started in Rome. In Rome, you have the proletarian movement started among the Romans, among the Romans. The proletarian movement started in Rome. And Julius Caesar was a wealthy landowner military leader in Rome. But Julius Caesar realized that if he became the champion of the proletarians, if he fought on behalf of the proletarians, that would give him more power than any other Roman figure. That if he fought for the proletarians, that he could become very, very powerful. And Julius Caesar became a populare or a populist who rallied the proletarians and enacted progressive reforms for the proletarians. Julius Caesar opened public libraries 
Did you know that? You open public libraries. And furthermore, because of the fact that many of the proletarians were Jews, because of that, Julius Caesar legalized monotheism. He said it was legal. He made it legal to believe in only one God. It used to be that, that if you were a monotheist, if you believed in only one God, that was a crime because you were denying the gods of Rome. But Julius Caesar legalized monotheism. Julius Caesar also freed all kinds of slaves. He said that anyone who's a slave, you get to be a proletarian. He granted freedom to the proletarian, the, 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 granted freedom to doctors. Uh, he granted freedom uh, to various sections among the slaves. Julius Caesar, uh, he, talked about, uh, he talked about redistributing land. He put forward a proposal to redistribute the land of Rome, to start giving Roman proletarians land. And that's not the most important thing that Julius Caesar did. Julius Caesar came forward and he said the relationship that Rome has with the rest of the world has to change. And he said that instead of tearing down countries around the world, that Rome should do the opposite. And he proposed a city-building program. I kid you not, he wanted to hire millions of unemployed proletarians and send them to Alexandria and put them to work making Alexandria a trading hub. And then he wanted to send them to Athens and he wanted to put them to work building Athens and making Athens into a prosperous trading hub. And he had a plan to start building beautiful cities all over Europe, all over the Middle East, and all over North Africa. Instead of Rome tearing down the rest of the world to get rich, Rome would start building cities across, across the empire. It would start raising people up. And in these cities that Rome built, Julius Caesar's proposal was that in these cities, he would grant citizenship to the peoples of these great cities that he built. He had a proposal to build cities all throughout the empire, a city-building proposal. And he would grant citizenship to those people so that they got to vote in the elections in Rome. This is Julius Caesar. This is who he was. Even within a dark, evil empire, even within a brutal, horrendous society, a progressive thinker emerged. A progressive thinker emerged, and he said, you know what, this may be an evil empire, it may be going in this direction of falling apart. It may be holding back history. But if I build a mass movement of proletarians, and if I mobilize the proletariat, and if I take power and mobilize the proletariat, I can reverse the trend. I can turn things around. I can start moving in a new direction. That was Julius Caesar. That even in, within the most evil society, even within the darkest, most primitive, backward, reactionary empire, a progressive emerged within the power structure and the greatest class in all of history, the proletariat emerged and the proletariat and Julius Caesar entered a strategic alliance to try and save Roman society. That's what Julius Caesar wanted to do. He wanted to change the direction that Roman society was going in. And it scared the crap out of the Roman elite. The fact that the Roman 
masses, the proletarians loved him so much. Three times, Julius Caesar was offered a crown, right? Three times he was in the Roman, you know, the forum or whatever, where there were big crowds of people around. And a group of people came and tried to put a crown on his head. And on three different times, Julius Caesar pushed the crown away. And the crowd of working people, of proletarians, of poor people, of homeless people, of working people in Rome, they saw him push the crown away and say, I don't want to be the king. They saw him push the crown away and they burst into cheers, applauding and sobbing and crying because they knew what that meant. They knew he didn't want to be a king. He wanted to be a leader of a democratic mass movement. Julius Caesar three times turned the crown away. He pushed the crown away symbolically. Can you imagine this? They're going to put the crown on his head. They are going to make him the ruler, the emperor of Rome, but he loves the masses of people so much. And he knows how much, how corrupt monarchies get and how much the people have been exploited and lied to by various kings over the... So on three different occasions, they try to put a crown on his head and he pushes the crown away and the crowd of working people sobs and cheers because they know that by doing that, by pushing the crown away, Julius Caesar is more powerful than any king could ever be. By having the ability to stand with the people, by drawing his power, not from some magical, magical, you know, mystical, mythological belief in a monarchy, not from some religious ceremony, but from popular power. By doing that, Julius Caesar was more powerful than any king could be. Julius Caesar was dangerous because he wouldn't put the crown on his head. That he drew his power from the people and he refused to put the crown on his head three times. And that's when the senators got together, the senators got together and they said, we got to kill this guy. We got to kill him. We got to get rid of him. He's got too much power. And we wanted to put a crown on his head and he wouldn't take the crown. So we got to get rid of him. And the story goes that uh, Julius Caesar was walking. Yes, Christian, and I'll get to that. Uh, that Julius Caesar, the story goes, was walking through the city of the city of Rome. And a soothsayer, a soothsayer walked up to him and said, beware the Ides of March. March 15th is the Ides of March. He said, beware the Ides of March. Beware the Ides of March. And Julius Caesar laughed about it, didn't pay any attention to it. And then the night before, in March 15th, that's the Ides of March, halfway through March, it's, a, it's close to the spring equinox. It's a big festival in Rome. On, on that morning, March 15th, Julius Caesar woke up and his wife came to him and she said, I just had this horrendous nightmare. I just had this horrendous nightmare. You can't go and speak to the Senate today. You can't go and speak to the Senate. And he said, I want none of your womanish superstitions. Pushed her aside started walking, walking to go and address the Senate. And he saw the same soothsayer. The same soothsayer came to Julius Caesar. And Julius Caesar saw the soothsayer and he said, looks like the Ides of March are here. It was kind of taunting him like, yeah, you said I should be afraid today. Nothing's going to happen today. And the soothsayer said to Julius Caesar, he said, the Ides of March are not yet over. 
And he rolled his eyes. Well, I don't know if he rolled his eyes. I don't think people did that back then. But, you know, he did say to the soothsayer, the Ides of March have come. And the soothsayer have said, well, they are not over yet. He went, he went to the Roman Senate. And when he got there, they stabbed him to death. 30 people, 30 Roman senators pulled out their knives and one by one, they stabbed him in the back. When you talk about 30 stabs in the back, you're dead. If they stab you in the back 30 times, you're dead. And one after another, they stuck their swords into him. 30 times, 30, 30 cuts. And it wasn't just his enemies who stabbed him in the back. One of the people who stabbed him was one of his best friends, Brutus. The story goes that as he was being stabbed in the back, he cries out, Et tu, Brute, you also, Brutus? He was hurt by the fact that a friend, someone he trusted, had betrayed him, had stabbed him in the back, literally. Julius Caesar was killed. And when the working people of Rome heard about this, they rioted. They rioted. And all of a sudden, the great Caesar, the great city of Rome went up in flames. And the people of Rome were out in the streets, tearing things apart and breaking windows and revolting, furious that their champion, their hero, had been killed. And they actually set up a funeral pyre. It wasn't even planned, but they broke furniture and they broke, broke buildings apart and they built a fire in the middle of the city and they cremated the great Julius Caesar. And that was how Julius Caesar met his end. And then after that, Rome broke apart into a civil war. Mark Anthony and his faction fought against Octavian and his faction. And that was the end of the Roman Republic. Rome was never a republic after that. It became an empire with a, an emperor who claimed to be God after that. And that pretty much sealed the deal. Julius Caesar had tried to save Rome from itself. He had tried to reverse the direction of Roman society. He had tried to take Rome from being a reactionary empire. And he tried to move it in the direction of being a progressive force. And the proletariat had supported him. The senators, the wealthy senators, they couldn't have it. And Julius Caesar was killed, was stabbed to death. And Rome got more and more reactionary, more and more, more and more dysfunctional until ultimately Rome fell. And the fall of the Roman Empire was not a good thing. Now, I know there's somebody who's watching this who says, oh, come on, Caleb, you just said Rome was an evil, barbaric society. Shouldn't we be celebrating the fall of the Roman Empire? Well, we should celebrate Spartacus and his heroic slave revolt. And we should celebrate the zealots, the Palestinian Jews who fought against the Roman Empire, the, you know, the heroic revolts that happened, right? We should celebrate that. 
But the idea that the fall of the Roman Empire, the way it happened, was a good thing is not true. The result of the fall of the Roman Empire was uh, basically the population of Europe plummeting. Human beings ended up being inches shorter as a result of the fall of the Roman Empire. Human calorie intake and life expectancy vastly decreased. Do you know how long it took for the population of Europe to get back to what it was at the time of the fall of the Roman Empire? It took 1,100 years for Europe to once again have the same population that it had at the time of the Roman Empire. That is not, that is not a, small, a small number. 1,100 years, 1,100 years to restore the population level. The fall of Rome, the fall of Rome was a huge step backward for humanity. Rome was at a precipice. It was at a turning point. It could have started moving in the opposite direction and becoming progressive, or it could have started deteriorating. And this is where Rosa Luxemburg's concept of socialism or barbarism comes from. I don't know if you're familiar with this. Rosa Luxemburg very famously said that Karl Marx's theory that socialism was inevitable was not actually correct. We could have socialism or barbarism. Right? That capitalism was going to collapse. There was no question about that. But it could collapse into revolution and socialism, or it could deteriorate into barbarism. Rome was an example of how Rome could have become more progressive. It could have gone with Julius Caesar and the city-building tendency. But instead, it moved in the other direction, and it deteriorated. And the fall of the Roman Empire was not good. You don't want to live through a societal collapse, right? Go see Mad Max. You ever see the Mel Gibson movie, Mad Max? Not a fun time to be alive. Go see Mad Max. That ain't, that ain't fun. You know, it might be a good movie to watch, 1980s movie starring Mel Gibson, but it's not a, not a particularly fun, fun time to live through. When civilizations collapse, when life expectancy deteriorates, when, you know, human beings end up being inches shorter, uh, you know, when the population level plummets, uh, not good. Not good. <laughs> And why do I talk about this? Why do I talk about the death of Julius Caesar so much? Why do I talk about it so much? Why is it important? The death of Julius Caesar is important for this reason. We are now living in the center of a reactionary empire. It's 2,000 years later, and we are living in the center of a reactionary empire. America, the United States, U.S. imperialism, is holding back history around the world. And we are living at the center of it. And we are once again at a precipice. We are at a precipice. You're at a precipice, at a turning point. Will the crisis of the society we are living in right now lead toward reaching a higher plane or will the United States degenerate into barbarism? That's what we have to decide. And so the death of Julius Caesar, understanding what Michael Parenti told us in this book, is so important. If you can understand this, you can understand, you can understand the stakes of the moment we're in. You can understand why I'm obsessed with things like Kamala Harris's personality, why I'm obsessed with divisions in the ruling class, because we are at a turning point. This is the late Roman Republic for America. 
we're in a crisis. We are in a really big crisis right now. And the question is, how do we respond to this crisis? How do we respond to it? Where is Julius Caesar? Where is Julius Caesar? Well, I maintain that as the crisis intensifies, the city-building tendency will emerge somewhere within the power elite. There will be figures within the power elite of the United States who, out of their own self-interest, Julius Caesar could have very well simply been selfish, wanted power, you know, I mean, saw that he wanted his empire to flourish, etc. There will be a section of the ruling class that will emerge that will want to have better relations with China, that will want to change the nature of the U.S. economy to be more productive, and will want to build a mass movement of proletarians to make it happen. And the rest of the ruling class is going to rush at them and try and stab them to death. Some people interpret this whole Julius Caesar obsession I've got. I'll just go on this tangent right now. Some people interpret this whole Julius Caesar obsession that I have going on. And they say, well, Caleb, you think you're Julius Caesar. You think you're going to be the leader. And I don't. I absolutely don't. Okay? No. No, the Julius Caesar that emerges will emerge from within the power structure. It'll be somebody who's in Congress right now. It'll be somebody who's in the military right now. It'll be somebody within the power structure. I'm a guy who writes books. I have a nice YouTube channel. I ain't going to be Julius Caesar, right? I work out a little bit, but, you know, trust me, I, I'm not, I'm not going to be Julius Caesar. The Center for Political Innovation is not going to be the new Bolshevik party that takes over the United States of America. We are not a party. We are a think tank. I'm not going to be Julius Caesar. You're not going to be Julius Caesar. In order for the, for the Julius Caesar to emerge from U.S. society, it's got to be somebody within the elite. And it'll probably be somebody who's motivated by self-interest. They'll just see which way the wind is blowing. They'll say, geez, Russia and China are rising. Geez, our economic system isn't sustainable. Geez, if I become the champion of the working class, I can make a lot of allies here. And they will make a strategic bet. This could happen. It will happen. This is inevitable. I mean, this is pretty much inevitable. Bonapartism is the natural result of capitalist crisis. Some kind of progressive Bonapartist figure will emerge within U.S. society. That's, that's a given. So who are we, right? If, I'm not, if I don't think I'm Julius Caesar, which is what's alleged, right? People think I'm Julius. I think I'm Julius Caesar. I've got delusions of grandeur. I don't. No. We're the soothsayers. We're the soothsayers. That's what think tanks are. We're the advisors. We're the people who understand what's happening. We're the ones whispering into the ear of kings and popular leaders. And we are building a think tank that will function as the soothsayer to warn Julius Caesar, to advise Julius Caesar. That's what we're doing. We're the soothsayers. We at the Center for Political Innovation are the soothsayers. That's what we are, right? We don't, you know, make our predictions based on mystical powers and magic. We use scientific Marxism and historical materialism, but we're the soothsayers. We're the smart guys who advise the Julius Caesars. That's what we are. Julius Caesar is going to emerge within U.S. society. And at that time, it will be our job to build the proletarian movement to have their back and to use our understanding of the objective laws of history and science to advise them in how they can move ahead and how they can be victorious and how the city building tendency can 
emerge and assert itself in America. That will be our job. We won't be we won't be the you know the, the the strong men running the government. I almost said dictator. That's not what I mean. We won't be the strong men running the government. And you know, but we'll be we'll be organizing and building a people's movement to save America. And furthermore, we will be using our understanding of history and its objective laws to make things happen. And that is the important announcement. This gets me to the important announcement that I am about to make. So if you wanted to come here because of the important announcement, I am ready to give you the important announcement. And if you were on the Zoom call today for the Center for Political Innovation that we have every, every Saturday, you already know about it. But if you weren't on the Zoom call, you're just hearing about it now. Here we go. Here is the big announcement. March 15th, the Ides of March, is now the Center for Political Innovation holiday. March 15th is City Builders Day. We are declaring this to be the holiday of the Center for Political Innovation. March 15th is City Builders Day. City Builders Day. It is the day that we will make it our mission to tell the American people what happened in ancient Rome and why it fucking matters in our time. City Builders Day, the day that Julius Caesar was assassinated, the day the Roman Empire was doomed, that will be the day that we, the Center for Political Innovation and the city building tendency, go to the broad masses of Americans with our message. City Builders Day. City Builders Day, March 15th. And on City Builders Day, for the first City Builders Day, City Builders Day 2022, I am going to Texas and I will be hosting an all-day event in Texas. An all-day socialist rally will be taking place in Texas on City Builders Day, on March 15th. For the first City Builders Day, I will be in Texas and with the John Brown Volunteers and with San Angelo Solidarity and with people from the Students and Youth for a New America clubs and with people from all kinds of different organizations. We are going to have a mass socialist educational meeting a mass rally with singing and speeches and chanting and different presentations. We are going to have a socialist mass meeting in Texas on March 15th, on City Builders Day. And I want you to be there. If you are anywhere near Texas, I'm not going to tell you where in Texas yet. We're working out the details of the venue. If you're anywhere near there, I want you there. The John Brown volunteers are there building it. We got other people around the country building it. March 15th, City Builders Day, the day that Julius Caesar died. That will be the day, that will be the day that we have the first City Builders Day, the national holiday of the Center for Political Innovation. City Builders Day, March 15th. Mark your calendar, get in your car, and drive your ass to Texas because we are going to have a rally to end all political rallies. There are going to be speeches there are going to be songs. There's going to be chanting. There is going to be power. And it's going to be an amazing day, March 15th. And we're working out the details about the venue. We're working out the details about the performers. We're working out all the details. March 15th, 2022 is going to be a day to remember. It will be the first City Builders Day, the day that a new holiday is kicked off. City Builders Day. City Builders Day 2022 is going to happen and you don't want to miss it. You don't want to miss it. It will be a day 
that we will do everything we can. We can do everything we can to make it a turning point. Because I got to tell you, you may not know this, folks, but our movement is on fire right now. Let me just, just run some things down for you. When the Center for Political Innovation started, it was an idea. It was an idea. It was two guys, me and my good friend, Justin. We were walking. We were walking in Los Angeles and talking. We were walking and talking. We said, why don't we start a think tank? That's a good idea. And then I started doing these live streams. And then, and then we had a class here. We had a class there. Then the pandemic happened. Then I debated Vosh. And I published some books. One thing led to another. And now the Center for Political Innovation is amazing. We've got a local in Texas. We've got a local in Washington, D.C. We've got a local in New York City. We've got a local in Los Angeles. We've got a local in the Bay Area. We've got a local in Chicago. Thank you. News shirt. We got a local in Chicago happening. Uh, we have got, we are on the brink of setting up a local in Washington state. We have people all around the country that are getting together once a week to study our teachings. And on top of that, we have a lot of influence. As much as, as people have tried to resist it, we've got influence in the Communist Party. We've got influence in the Socialist Party. We've got influence in the Democratic Socialists of America. We've got influence in the labor movement. We've got influence. We've got influence all over the place. Infrared. Infrared is, is studying what we are doing. Uh, you know, we, we all kinds of people are tuning in and watching these streams. And you know, there are some phrases we've come up with. You ever hear people talk about the synthetic left? You ever hear people talk about that? Who do you think came up with that? Where do you think the synthetic left comes from? Maybe you should check out a book called We Are City Builders or City Builders and Vandals in Our Age because that's where the phrase synthetic left was first used. And now it's used by all kinds of people. We invented that, folks. Synthetic left is our invention and it's being widely used and discussed now. Right. Furthermore, in addition to that, in addition to that, um, out of the movement to the masses, people are saying that all over this country now. Out of the movement to the masses. Who do you think invented that? Right. I mean, this is this is everywhere you go. You hear people saying we need a government of action to fight for working families. You can't go to a socialist gathering in this country. Every time there's a socialist meetup, somebody somewhere says, you know, we need a government of action to fight for working families. Who do you think came up with that? We are doing this, folks. We are doing this. We have a full-time outreach team called the John Brown Volunteers. These are people, you know, they don't work at Walmart. Uh, they're they don't work at uh, they don't work at CVS. Uh, they they don't uh, they're not uh, they're not in college. Uh, they're not uh, they are not uh, they are not uh, uh, you know they're not marine biologists. They're not rocket scientists. They're not cancer researchers. They are full-time volunteers for the Center for Political Innovation full-time, and they live together, and they study together, and they go out, and they organize. They organize with each other with the, every every day. They are full-time. We have a full-time outreach team. Um, uh, I don't know who that is. Uh, I don't know who that is, Andrew, but, but thank you. Um, you know, uh, they have a full-time outreach team, uh, and they are doing stuff. And right now, they're in Texas. And after Texas, after we close out the Texas campaign with our March 15th City Builders Day rally. After that, we are headed to Chicago and we are going to do the same thing in Chicago. And then, and this is another big announcement. So big announcement number three, right? We had Char Char recording the Kamala Harris book. We have City Builders Day. Big announcement number three. 
June 22nd through 26th, June 22nd through 26th, we are having our national meetup, our national gathering for the Center for Political Innovation. It will take place in a rural area. It will be our national four-day retreat, June 22nd through June 26th. It's going to be probably in rural Illinois. We're still working on the location. Our national meetup, which is, you know, by invitation only, you have to get approved. You, have, you can apply to go, but you have to get approved. Um, you know, it's not a public event. Um, our national gathering is going to happen June 22nd through 26th. Our national gathering. We had one gathering in Pennsylvania this, this, uh, this summer. We had another one in California. This will be a national retreat, a national gathering for the Center for Political Innovation. will be happening June 22nd through 26th a four-day intense training for the Center for Political Innovation, a communist summer camp, summer camp in the countryside. It's going to be great. And we are going to be all kinds of activities and all kinds of classes. And it is going to be a four-day experience that you will not regret participating in. Uh, it's going to be amazing. It is going to be really, really amazing. So mark your calendars. If you can't make it on March 15th, be sure to join us on June 22nd through the 26th. We are moving. The city building tendency is in business. The city building tendency is in business. We are on fire. Every day I get another email. Someone says, Caleb, I want to join. I want to join the Center for Political Innovation. Our membership is formally opening starting January 1st. You'll be able to sign up and join on the website. Right now, it's kind of informal. We have our Zoom calls every Saturday. But this is happening. We are on fire. This is a movement. This is a movement. We're not synthetic left. We're not trying to cuss out mom and dad and call people racist and, and scream and yell at people. We are a progressive city-building tendency movement pushing constructive, optimistic socialism. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to do, and everyone can participate. Some people, some people are going to be full-time organizers, John Brown volunteers. Some people are going to be student organizers with Students and Youth for a New America. Some people are just going to join on the website. Maybe they don't even come to an event, and that's fine. Everyone has a contribution to make. We want to involve everyone. And we talk about Fusion City. And we talk about the Sandino-Zapata Economic Corridor. Everyone has a role to play. Everyone has a role to play. Our job is to find out how you can make the best contribution you can possibly make. We want to maximize your potential. One thing that drives me up the wall about a lot of these stupid little tiny communist groups is they hold people back. They hold people back. They, they prevent people from doing what they can do. Yeah, they tell people, oh, you can't do that. You can't do that. You can't do that. Right? I mean, I, somebody was talking to me the other day. They were in a communist group. The group didn't even have a meeting for like three months. They didn't even have a meeting. And finally, they set up the meeting. And then they got in big trouble for organizing the meeting. I mean, this is, I, I mean, you wouldn't believe some of what I hear. All these tiny, little, little irrelevant sects, what do they do? They tell people, you can't, you can't, you can't do that. You didn't ask the right committee. You can't do that. You didn't get approval from the secretary of the secretary of the, you know, oh, you can't do that. You didn't, that is not what the Center for Political Innovation is going to be about. We're not about saying you can't. We're about saying you can and we are going to help you to find potential in yourself to do things you never even believed you were capable of doing. Talk to the John Brown volunteers. Don't believe me? Talk to them. 
Ask them. Ask them. They, they are doing things right now they never thought they could be doing. People that were very shy before, were afraid to talk, are now getting on microphones and telling great speeches to audiences full of people. People who never thought that they would be able to lead political classes are giving lectures on Marx and Lenin. We are all about finding the strength and the potential inside of you and unleashing it to new heights. We believe in your potential. It's not about glorifying me, right? I'm a guy, you know, if you think I'm pretty great, I appreciate that. I, I, I'm glad you have a high opinion of me, but I'm just, I'm just a guy. I'm just getting the ball rolling. I'm just getting the ball rolling. That's all I'm doing. It's about finding out what you can do. I want you to make a great contribution to socialism. I want you to make a mass contribution to saving America from the decline of capitalism. That's what I want. I want you to be successful. I'm not concerned about making sure that I'm the I'm hailed and that people are swearing allegiance to me. I'm not the new I'm not going to become the new Julius Caesar. I'm just a soothsayer. I'm just a soothsayer. I'm just a scientist. I'm just a political analyst. But the times are serious. The times are desperate and we have so much important work to do. We absolutely have so much important to do, work to do. Now, Christian in the chat stole my thunder a little bit, um, but that's okay. I'm going to make this point anyway. I'm going to make this point anyway, at risk of offending some folks. Uh, what's up, my proletariat? Well, thank you, Convo Couch. At risk of offending some of my more religious listeners, I'm just going to point this out, right? Because, you know, Julius Caesar was the champion of the Roman proletariat. He was the champion of the Roman proletariat. And the Roman proletariat, they fought for Julius Caesar. They rioted in response to his assassination. They wept at his funeral pyre. And shout out to you, Convo Couch. You guys are doing great work. You should check out what they've done in Honduras. They're, they're just the cream of the crop, Convo Couch. But, but, you know, Julius Caesar fought for the working class. He fought for the proletariat. He fought for the working people. And he was assassinated. But after his death, it started out among Jewish proletarians in Rome, because many of, the, many of the Roman proletarians were Jews from Palestine. They started worshiping, worshiping a deity, a god, who was like they were, a proletarian, a carpenter. It was Jesus Christ. Uh, you know, Jesus Christ was not a slave, and Jesus Christ was not a landowner. He was a proletarian. He was a carpenter. He, he sold his labor power, just like the just like the the carpenters in Rome who were proletarians, just like the uh, the the uh, the pipe fitters and the mason bricklayers, and you know, Jesus was a proletarian. Jesus was a proletarian, and his initials, if you look at the name Jesus Christ, J.C., are the same initials as Julius Caesar, and much like Julius Caesar. Jesus Christ was betrayed by a good friend. He was betrayed by a good friend. Judas Iscariot or Brutus both betrayed, betrayed a leader who was rallying the proletarians. And furthermore, they were both killed by the Roman Empire around the time of the spring equinox, March around the time of the spring equinox, right? Easter, right? Spring equinox, right? I understand Jesus was crucified around the time of the Passover holiday, uh, and Julius Caesar was stabbed to death on March 15th, the Ides of March. 
So both of them were killed around the time of the spring equinox. Both of them, both of them were betrayed by a good friend. Both of them were champions of the proletarians, the common people. And furthermore, it's worth noting that one of the nicknames of Julius Caesar by his political opponents was King of the Jews. Did you know this? The proletarians, the poor people who were not Roman citizens, who didn't have any property, but were not slaves, many of them were Jews. And so to insult Julius Caesar, and you can read this, it's actually in, in, you know, in, in Plutarch, uh, one of the ancient Roman historians, talked about how Julius Caesar was the champion of Greeks and Jews. So you'll recall that when Jesus Christ was crucified, they referred to him as the king of the Jews. Thank you, Peter. They called him the king of the Jews. And that was also one of the insults that was hurled at Julius Caesar. He was called the king of the Jews. Now, what do we make of that? Who knows? Similarities. But, you know, another thing that happens is that in the ancient world where they didn't have a printing press and stories get passed on by word of mouth, myths and legends borrow from each other. And we know for a fact that the reason Christianity became a global religion is because it caught on in ancient Rome. If it hadn't been taking hold in the city of Rome, we would never have heard of Christianity. But Christianity, it spread from Jerusalem to Rome. And when Christianity took hold in Rome, it was the religion of the proletariat. Christianity was the religion of the proletariat. It was the religion that proletarians rallied around. In ancient Rome, the way it worked is that every profession, every job had what they called the mystery cult, right? Among the Navy, they had the cult of Poseidon. I forget what Poseidon's Roman name was, but there were certain secret rituals that sailors did and the Roman Navy did because it was part of being a sailor or a Navy man as you, you know, you you were involved in the cult of Poseidon and you had a special religious ceremony and special temples you prayed at because you did that for a living. Sections of the military also had their own gods, right? And that they had military orders, um, you know, military orders that were centered around their various, uh, various professions. Christianity was in many ways the mystery cult of the proletariat. It was the way working people who were not slaves and were not masters, uh, you know, they didn't own any property, but they also were not owned by anybody else. It was the religion. It was the religion through which they organized themselves. It was Christians who organized the first strikes. It was Christians who organized the first strikes in Rome, uh, some of the first strikes. It was Christians who built orphanages for those homeless children. It was Christians uh, who started food programs to feed the hungry and the unemployed. The Christians in Roman society were very much the political movement of the proletariat. And that's a point that I make in this book, in my conclusion essay to this book, Jesus is a Socialist. That's one of the main points that I make, that the Christians, the Christians were the expression of the proletariat. They were the religion of the proletariat in Roman society. Um, and that's what they did, right? They organized the working people. They organized the working people. They fought on their behalf and they preached that their God Jesus Christ, who'd been wrongfully executed after being betrayed, who'd been killed, they preached that one day he was going to return. 
He was going to return, and that day would be the day where the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. And that someday there would become a great reckoning. There would become a great reckoning where their God who'd been killed and been defeated would return, and he would come down from heaven and strike down the powerful and raise up the oppressed and turn the world around. And they held that faith that someday all their sacrifices would be worth it. Someday all the persecution they endured would be worth it. Someday they would be vindicated, that they would love their brother and sister. They would stand arm in arm. They would challenge the rich and powerful. And someday the forces of righteousness would come down and redeem them and tear apart the brutal, oppressive society they were living in and build something beautiful in its place. God's kingdom on earth, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That was the, that was the vision of Christianity. Christianity was a revolutionary movement. It was proletarians coming together, saying there is only one God. There is only one force for good in the universe. There's only one force for good in the universe. There is only one God. And that God is not working for this empire. That God was killed by the empire. But one day that God is going to return and he is going to tear this empire down. And the last shall be first and the first shall be last. And those who produce by the sweat of their brow and labor and produce the wealth of the world will stand triumphant. That was the teachings of the Christian religion. That's what Christianity was. That is what the Christian religion was. And that is why they threw those Christians to the lions. And that is why they burned those Christians at the stake. That's why, that is why they persecuted Christianity. It was a revolutionary movement, a revolutionary movement against a heartless, ruthless empire. And that is why, that is why Christianity was suppressed by the Roman Empire. But, You'll notice that as Rome continued to be reactionary, as Rome continued to deteriorate, there were some within the Roman ruling class who said, oh, geez, there's all these poor people and they're rioting, and they're rebelling against us. And, uh, you know, there's all these hungry, poor people. You know, these Christians, they build orphanages for the, the homeless children. You know, maybe we can, maybe we can, let these Christians build some orphanages and then there'll be less homeless children out there. And maybe we can let these Christians feed some people and then, and then they can, you know, they can not, you know, riot as much. We won't have as many bread riots. And there started to be a division within Christianity. There started to be a division within Christianity. Some of the wealthiest Romans started saying that they were Christians. And even though Christianity was nominally illegal, there started to be an above-ground church in Rome that wasn't as illegal. And you had some of the wealthiest Romans converting to Christianity and saying, yeah, we're Christians, but their Christianity wasn't the same as the revolutionary movement. Their Christianity was not about tearing down the Roman Empire. Their Christianity was about how to use some of the Christian values to make the Roman Empire more stable. That's what their Christianity was about. Their Christianity said, you know, geez, we go around the world and, you know, there's Germans who rebel against us and they're worshiping Odin and there's Persians who rebel against us and they're worshiping Zarathustra 
and there's Africans rebelling against us and they have their gods. But if we make a law that there's only one God, that'll prevent all these people in the empire from having their own gods. Oh, okay. And, you know, if we promise the people that eventually someday there'll be some magical, magical, uh, you know, heaven after they die or some magical end of the times thing that'll correct everything, then they won't revolt against us because they'll think it's just preordained to happen. And, you know, if we build a few orphanages here and we give some free food giveaways here, that'll make society more stable. You had a section of the Roman elite that said, maybe instead of persecuting Christianity, we can just steal its thunder a little bit. We can make a version of Christianity that's not a threat to the empire. And so gradually, the Christian church started to polarize. You had some in the Christian church that maintained the revolutionary teachings. And you had some in the Christian church who went along with the wealthy Romans uh, who wanted to appropriate Christianity to make their empire better. I don't know if you've ever read the book of Revelations, the final book of the Bible, right? And that's a crazy book, right? It's a, cra it's a crazy book of the Bible, right? And it's the, what is it? The, you know, the, you know, the number of the beast shall be 666. And it's all kinds of incoherent stuff. And, you know, the thing high up on the thing and the dragon and the four horsemen and all of that. But one thing, if you read the book of Revelations, one thing that really stands out in the book of Revelations is there is a rant against the whore of Babylon, the whore of Babylon. And if you read it, the whore of Babylon is one who has sold out, one who is a Christian, but has turned against Christ and in the name of Christ is doing evil. And if you read it, you know, the book of Revelations goes on page after page of the punishment of the great whore and condemning the great whore of Babylon. It's a bit misogynist, right? We wouldn't use obviously that kind of language today, but that's what it says. It talks about, you know, and the emperor of the world will have sex with a famous prostitute. Um, you know, and, and it talks all about the whore of Babylon. Well, I'll tell you who the whore of Babylon is. The whore of Babylon is Hassan Piker. The whore of Babylon is Jabba the Vosh. The whore of Babylon, the whore of Babylon is thought slime. The whore of Babylon is contrapoints. The whore of Babylon is AOC. The whore of Babylon is Bernie Sanders. That's who the whore of Babylon is. The whore of Babylon is those who raise the red flag to oppose the, the red flag. The whore of Babylon is all of those, all of those who speak in the name of socialism, but want to hang Julian Assange from a lamppost. It's all of those who speak in the name of socialism, but supported the bombing of Libya and the destruction of the most prosperous African country. It is all of those who speak in the name of socialism, but will not fight for Medicare for all and refused to support, refused to support, uh, uh, force the vote. That's who the whore of Babylon is. Those who raise the red flag to oppose the red flag, who preach socialism, but practice fascism to preserve capitalism for the bosses. Those who demonize us, those who try to say that we, the true socialists, are somehow fascists and the enemy. That's who the whore of Babylon is. The whore of Babylon is those who sell out socialism, who want to make socialism just a mechanism for strengthening the very empire that we are supposed to be opposing. That's who the whore of Babylon is. That is who the whore of Babylon is. Social democracy, social imperialism, social chauvinism, 
That is the whore of Babylon. That's who the whore of Babylon is. That's who the whore of Babylon is. And it won't save the empire. Constantine, the Roman Empire emperor, eventually converted to Christianity. Did you know that? Constantine almost converted to Christianity. Not almost, he did, right? Constantine, the story goes, Constantine was sleeping one night in his bed. He had a dream, and this booming voice said to him, Constantine. And then he saw the image of a cross, and it said, Constantine, under this sign, you shall conquer. And Constantine awoke from his dream and said, Wow, I've got to be a Christian because I had this dream and it said under this sign, ye shall conquer. You know what's really ironic? You know what's really ironic about this is that, uh, that actually, but actually around the time that Rome converted to Christianity, give it a hundred years or so, that's when it fell. So I don't know whose voice that was in Constantine's dream, but uh, if it was the voice of God, it lied to him. Because under that sign, he did not conquer. Under that sign, the Roman Empire collapsed. The Roman Empire collapsed. And do you know why the Roman Empire collapsed at the same time it adopted Christianity? That's a really big point, by the way, uh, in, in The City of God, right? St. Augustine, he wrote this very important book called The City of God. It's a very important document in Christian theology. And it's written from this very defensive place because he's like, oh my goodness, right? The, the Roman Empire fell. This huge empire collapsed at the same time they adopted our religion. And that makes it a little difficult to convince people to adopt our religion because at the same time they adopted it, this huge empire collapsed. Well, St. Augustine didn't need to write the big book, City of God. It's a good book. It's an important book if you want to understand the perspective of, you know, European civilization, et cetera. But at the end of the day, the City of God was not necessary. The City of God was not necessary. It was not necessary for him to write it. You know why it wasn't necessary for St. Augustine to write the book, The City of God? Because there's a reason that's very common sense. Do you know why the Roman Empire collapsed? Do you know why the Roman Empire collapsed around the same time it adopted Christianity? Do you know why Christianity did not save the Roman Empire? Because Christianity is not meant to save the Roman Empire. Christianity was a revolutionary movement of the proletariat. It was not about how to make a good empire. It was about tearing down empires. And, Amer and American imperialism will collapse with social democracy. Social democracy will not save American imperialism. It will not make it more efficient it will destroy it. Just like you know, the Romans trying to adopt elements of Christianity to save their empire didn't work, social democracy will not save American imperialism. They will not be able to save it with American imperialism. The only way, the only way out is to change the nature of society. The banks, the factories, the means of production, the centers of economic power must be controlled by the people. We have to get rid of profits in command. We have to break free from the global system of monopoly capitalism that is grinding countries into poverty, that is eliminating workers from the assembly line, that has reduced the next generation of people to low-wage, short-term service sector jobs. We must move toward the abolition of capitalism. Social democracy and social reformism will not save capitalism. It won't save capitalism. The only way out is a government of action that will fight for working families. But folks, folks, I've been going on, these are long opening remarks tonight, but it's okay because I've got a lot to say. I just want to tell you this. I just want to tell you this because 
you know, a lot of things have happened over the years. A lot of things have happened over the years. I could make historical analogies all night, but there are things that need to be said. And the first thing that I want to say, that I absolutely want to say, is that, that we will prevail. I'm confident that we will prevail. If you look at how rapidly our organization has grown in the last year, uh, I mean, it's unbelievable. Two big national gatherings around the country, locals opening up every day. We're expanding. And you know, there was a time years ago where people thought they'd heard the last of me. People thought that they had heard the last of me. They thought they'd heard the last of Caleb. They thought, hey, you know, he's done with the Workers' World Party. He's got a job in media. You know, he's just going to become some talking head on TV. We're never going to hear him talking about revolution and socialism again. And boy, were they wrong. Boy, were they wrong. While, while certain parties are collapsing and falling apart and becoming more and more irrelevant every day, we're growing. And people are talking about us. You know, they are. Things are happening. We are expanding more every day. More people are joining up with us every day. We are growing and we are expanding because we have tapped into something very, very special. You know, there's an expression. I know It's interesting. Many people uh, who have struggled with addiction have come into the Center for Political Innovation. I don't reveal anyone's private business, mind you, so I will not name names right? I respect people's privacy, but there's many people who have struggled with drug addiction. They've struggled with drug addiction over the years, and somehow that gets them into the Center for Political Innovation. Now, some of them were people that I knew before. They were like marginal in my life. I knew them here. I knew them there. They knew of me, but they were drunk and high, and they were doing drugs. But then something happened, and they hit rock bottom. They hit rock bottom. You know, their addiction just got you know, it got out of control. They couldn't prevail any longer. They couldn't keep going in the old way. And they started getting help. They got into recovery. And that's when all of a sudden my message really hit home with them. When they reached that rock bottom point, they realized their life was out of control. It was at that moment, that moment when they had to take control of their life, they had to get some help with their addiction. It was at that moment that suddenly my message, the patriotic, constructive socialism, the city-building tendency, optimism, suddenly it clicked. It made sense. And that's interesting to me. That's very, very interesting to me because I think that's a very good analogy for the country and it's a very good analogy for the socialist movement. Very good analogy for the country, very good analogy for the socialist movement. Because right now, America is heading toward rock bottom. On Thanksgiving, the electricity went out in Southern California, and 64,000 people spent Thanksgiving without electricity. There was a, uh, there was a riot on Capitol Hill uh, in which, you know, which, you know, I mean, you know what happened on January 6th. We're at a point where there's a lunatic an utter lunatic who's about to become president, possibly. She's vice president. We're hitting rock bottom as a country. But we're also at the point that people are ready to hear what we have to say. And furthermore, the socialist movement is hitting rock bottom, right? One of our main, uh, main voices is a video game playing uh, child porn promoter, all right? Uh, you know, we've got socialists who want to execute Julian Assange. 
We've got, you know, we've got socialists who are calling for coups against against Russia and and uh, attacks on attacks on different countries around the world. More people than ever are interested in socialism, but the socialist movement is is confused and weaker than ever. It, it, it's a weird moment. It's the best of times, full of potential, but it's the worst of times and what's actually happening. We are at that moment, that rock bottom moment in the United States, and we are at that rock bottom moment in the socialist movement. And it's when people hit rock bottom that they realize it's now or never. I've got to make a choice. I have got to make a choice. I have got to start moving in a new direction. That's what we're here to say. We're the soothsayers, as I said. We're not Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar will emerge from the power structure. Not sure who it'll be, but Julius Caesar will emerge. But it will be our job to build the mass movement that will back Julius Caesar. And it will be our job to use our understanding of scientific Marxism and historical materialism to advise Julius Caesar. That will be our job. We are the city builders. We are the soothsayers. We've got a lot of work to do. So March 15th, I'll see you in Texas for City Builders Day. I'll see you in Illinois this summer for our national gathering. And that concludes my opening remarks for tonight. Names and locations, I will call you out as I see you. Who's with us? Names and locations. I will call you out as I see you. Names and locations. And I've got to straighten out the pillows I'm sitting on or else I'll be flipping and flopping all night here. So there you go. All right, Leipzig, East Germany, Quinn and Meredith in West Virginia and Washington State, Big G Haywood, uh, DC, Kendall in San Diego, Happy in Quincy, Springfield, Missouri, Green Bay, Wisconsin, Ash in Chicago, Giles, Cincinnati, Char Char Darling in San Angelo, Texas, JT24 in Mississippi, David in China, Naples, Florida, Arturo from Alaska, Ryan in Oakland. City Builders, Glasgow, Scotland, Wisconsin, Patrick from Rhode Island, Cleveland Pirate Alex, Michelle in Mexico, Jason in Georgia, Gallon in North Carolina, West Virginia, Temple City, Tucson, Arizona, Dario from Italy, San Miguel, Allende, Mexico City, Grand Canyon, Arizona, Southwest Michigan, Las Vegas, Mosin from Iran, Ben Cavanaugh. It's Ben in Edinburgh, Scotland. We need a CPI reading group in Scotland and CP City Builders rally in Glasgow. We'll do it. Do it, Ben. You can make it happen. You can make it happen. Organize it, Ben. I mean, you can get in contact with us. They're already forming the Center for Political Innovation of Australia. But if you want to form the Center for Political Innovation of, of Scotland, I'm for it. The Center for Political Innovation of Scotland is got my blessing. Give me a call. Let's make it happen. Carolyn in Staten Island, Chicago Smedley, Danny in Illinois, Io Hillary in New York. Shout out to you. Utah, Ithaca, New York, CPI, CPI, says Michael. Shout out to you, Michael. St. David's in Bermuda, Neil Frazier in Hong Kong, Cincinnati, Ohio, Alex in Albuquerque, Finland, Canada, Detroit, Michigan, Dario from Brooklyn, Ray's from Adelaide, Australia, Alberto and Pauline in Miami, Florida, Sam in Australia, Travis from Texas, Lee Hinchcliffe in Sheffield, UK, St. George, Utah, Ryan Preston. Shout out to you, Ryan. Shout out to you. I saw you at the California conference. You're awesome. Lynn in Portland, Oregon. Bob and Troy. Jose Gonzalez in Venezuela. Gabby Hernandez in Chicago. Gabby is working to start a Spanish language, 
uh, CPI reading group. It's in the process of being started. There's folks in Texas who are going to work with Gabby. I'm so excited about it. If you want to get involved in that, you know, shoot me an email because, you know, we want to start a Spanish language reading group for CPI. That's going to be so awesome. Mindanao to Midwest, Olympia Logic. Shout out to you, Olympia. You're awesome. You're awesome. Robert in Australia, Anthony in Chicago, uh, Michael from PA. Shout out to you, Michael, longtime friend of mine. Shout out to you, Michael. Uh, love you, Michael. I can't wait to see you. See you at the end of the month. That's going to be great. Ben in Chicago, Balthazar in Oakland, Lockport, New York, Tennessee, Rocky Top, Edmonton, Alberto, uh, Deb in Mexico, Deborah Wilson. Shout out to you, Deborah. Uh, John Witte in Houston, Dennis in Ottawa, uh, Canada. Patrick from Los Angeles, Mexico, uh, Southwest France, Toledo, Ohio, Northern Michigan, Edinburgh, Scotland, um, uh, Orange Duke in Los Angeles, Sam Netton in Chicago. I just had a great meeting with the Chicago local on Zoom. They are doing every week they have reading groups. The John Brown volunteers are going to be supporting them later this year. Great stuff. Uh, Toronto, Canada, California. Um, uh, uh, great stuff is happening. Ella in Maine. Um, you know, Great stuff. Great stuff happening, folks. Great stuff happening. All right. So now I'm going to answer your super chat questions. But before I do that, I want to ask you, um, I want to ask you to do something. I want to ask you to do something that's a little bit more important than giving me a super chat. If you really want to do a favor for all of us, you see that link down there in the chat uh, to donate to support the John Brown Volunteers Texas campaign. I would like you to go hit that PayPal link and shoot us a small donation. If you can do that, that would mean the world to me. It would mean the world to me, and uh, YouTube would not be taking 30% of it, and it would go to help fund the campaign of the John Brown Volunteers. Uh, you know, we, you know, I put up a lot of my personal funds to make this organization happen, and it's necessary. And I get a lot of support from people around the country, and it's it's necessary. And I, but you know, it's a struggle. There's always a struggle going on. So if you want to help the John Brown Volunteers, please, uh, the link is right there. Uh, you can just click on that PayPal link and just shoot them a contribution. All contributions are appreciated, no matter how big or small. Uh, so please just uh, just you know you know crush that uh, PayPal link below and and help the John Brown Volunteers. But yes, I'm here to answer your super chat questions for the rest of the night. That is how the rest of this stream is going to go. So uh, keep the super chats rolling in, and we will go from there. First question, uh, Hugo Chavez. What do I think of Hugo Chavez TV show, Allo Presidente? That was a brilliant move on the part of Hugo Chavez. Hugo Chavez was the president of Venezuela. He was elected. At first, he said he didn't believe in either capitalism or socialism. Uh, but then he faced a coup. In 2002, there was a military coup attempt to overthrow him, and the labor movement came out to support him, and the rank-and-file soldiers came out to support him. And then he announced, after defeating the coup, after he was brought back into power, he announced that he was moving towards socialism. Uh, and Hugo Chavez had this national TV program, this call-in TV program. Uh, and uh, people called in and talked about life. And it wasn't fake, right? Because that's the thing, right? There's a lot of leaders. I think Jimmy Carter used to take people's calls on TV, but it was fake. It was staged. It was it was not real. But Hugo Chavez really took people's calls. You know, um, somebody called in. It's a very funny story. Somebody called in to Allo Presidente one time. They said the tolls on our national roads, you know, the tolls to get on the highways in Venezuela are too much. And Hugo Chavez heard that and he said, all right, no more tolls on the roads. You know, and, and he got rid of tolls on the roads. Then somebody else called in and they said, Hugo Chavez, I'm a toll worker. Now I don't have a job. And he said, oh, okay. Well, all the toll workers will now work. And he created somewhere else for them. It was kind of funny, but you know, he, he was this call-in show. And I remember, I remember um, when I, um, 
when I, I went to Venezuela and I met with people in one of the colectivos, uh, the communes in central Caracas. Um, it's going to be hard for me to not, you know, start crying here and not get emotional about these things. But, um, you know, some people just don't understand the socialist movement and how important it is um, and how important it is in people's lives. And, uh, you know, in central Caracas, there's a certain neighborhood. Um, it's, uh, I forget the name of it, but it's a neighborhood that's long been a stronghold of the Communist Party. It's a working class neighborhood. And in that neighborhood, there are a number of, you know, communes or collectivos, they call them, that are, you know, supporting of the Venezuelan government. And, you know, they have militias, they have armed groups that support the Venezuelan government. Um, they have worker-owned factories and, and cooperatives. And, you know, we went to one of the collectivos um, and we're there and they've got pictures on the wall of, you know, Lenin and Lenin and Mao and, and you know, and, and, and it's, you know, it's one of these collectivos in Venezuela. And we met with the woman who was the head of security at, at, the, at the collectivo. Um, and she had army pants on, you know, khaki pants. Um, you know, she's involved in the Bolivarian militias. And she's only 21 years old. She's young. And she shared with us about how important that TV program, Allo Presidente, was in her life. Um, she talked about how she feels like Hugo Chavez raised her because she was an orphan. And when, when she was a small child, like a toddler, like two or three years old, she was roaming the streets by herself in Caracas. She didn't speak Spanish. She spoke an indigenous language. Her family, because of neoliberalism, had been thrown off of their land. She had come to the city as a homeless child. She was roaming the city, not speaking Spanish, but speaking only the indigenous language, a small toddler roaming the city. And a, a socialist, a socialist priest, a priest who was friendly with the Communist Party, had had adopted her and brought her into brought her into this socialist community uh, in central Caracas. And she grew up you know, in this orphanage run by communists and run by a socialist priest, run by liberation theologists. And she talked about how, you know, she spent her whole childhood watching Hugo Chavez. And Hugo Chavez would recommend books to them. He said, read Les Miserables, you know, the novel. So she read that huge, you know, Victor Hugo, Les Miserables. Hugo Chavez said to read Leon Trotsky's transitional program. So she read it. Hugo Chavez said to read What is to be Done by Lenin. So she read it. And she felt like Hugo Chavez was almost like her father, um, you know? And she would watch, she didn't miss an episode of Allo Presidente. She said, I am Hugo Chavez's child. Hugo Chavez was my father. And she said to us, to a group of Americans, not a group of, you know, you know, fellow Venezuelans, not a group of, you know, other communist activists from the country, to a group of Americans, she said, God brought me into this world for a reason. I was brought into this world by God for a reason. And God wants me to die for socialism. God wants me to die for Hugo Chavez. And I will die for Hugo Chavez. I will die for socialism. That's what she told us. That's what she told us. I'll never forget that. I will never forget that. I see your question, Io. I'm writing it down. I will never forget that. I will never forget that. 
That's the socialist movement, folks. When I was when I was 12 years old, my dad, you know, he lead he leads nature tours. It's like a side job he had. So he was leading some nature tours in Ecuador. I was 12 years old. I went with my dad to Ecuador. I went to arrive in Quito, Ecuador. We got off the plane. It was the middle of the night. And I had it, I had never seen that kind of poverty before. But the reason that I saw that kind of poverty was because Quito, Ecuador was being destroyed by the international bankers. Um, neoliberalism had wrecked Ecuador's economy. They had been forced to adopt the dollar. They'd been for, forced to just cut all their subsidies to domestic farmers. And I got to Quito, Ecuador in 1999 when I was 12 years old, and I saw crowds of desperately poor, starving people from the countryside of Ecuador. You know, hundreds of thousands of people died in a crisis of malnutrition in Ecuador created by capitalism in 1999. Um, and I mean, it was desperate people. And I remember I was a 12-year-old kid from Ohio. I'd never seen anything like this before. You know, and I'm walking through the city and I'm just seeing crowds of desperately poor people created by neoliberalism. That's what capitalism does. You know, capitalism is, capitalism is a Holocaust, okay? Let's just be real, right? Why do you think all these people are piling onto the U.S. border? What are they running from in Guatemala? What are they running from in Honduras? What are they running from? You know, why is it that Libya, once the most prosperous country in Africa, now has people drowning in the Mediterranean trying to get out? You know, read what the World Health Organization is saying right now about, about the world global crisis of malnutrition. Capitalism is a holocaust. Millions of people die every day because of capitalism. So many people have been, you know, destitute and left without, even though we have the most efficient economy ever. I mean, we have the most efficient system of production ever. Um, you know, I mean, we can make iPhones and iPads and, and we can make, make products better than we ever can. But under capitalism, people's only value, people's only value is if they can sell their labor. If a capitalist can turn their labor into profits, um, value can be derived from their labor. And it's bad. It's getting bad here, right? We got places where the drinking water isn't properly purified. We got a, a new generation of young people stuck in low-wage, short-term service sector jobs, uh, we've got chronic unemployment. Uh, you know, we've got, you know, there's the, the, the food banks here in New York and, and around the country have just been overwhelmed. Uh, but this is capitalism. This is capitalism. Capitalism is a crisis. Capitalism is mass death. Capitalism is mass hunger and starvation. Um, and, you know, they always want to give us this body count. You can't be a communist because communism killed gajillion, gamillion people. The body count for capitalism would be so massive if they were to add it up. All the people who died in World War I so the capitalists could divide up the world and divide up the colonial world to make more profits. All the people who died in the Vietnam War and the Korean War. All the people who've died since the 1980s when the U.S. government was arming drug cartels in Central America and arming terrorists. All the people who died from the crack epidemic when those drug dealers that were being armed by the United States to fight against socialism in Central America brought crack to the United States. All the people who, who died in Indonesia uh, when they overthrew the socialist president in 1965 and, and committed genocide against ethnically Chinese people. All the people who've died in India over the years of malnutrition because that USA you know, has kept that country a free market country, prevented it from having socialism. I mean, all the people in Africa, right? I mean, in Africa, the malnutrition, Nigeria, the wealthiest country in Africa, the highest exporter of oil, has a life expectancy that's not much higher than than seven than 60 years old. It's like 68, 67 years old is their life expectancy. 
Capitalism has a body count that is so massive, you can't imagine. And it's socialism that has reversed that. It is socialism that has built power plants all over Brazil. It is socialism that made China into a global superpower. It's socialism that made the Soviet Union industrialized and strong enough to defeat the Nazis. It is socialism that gave Cuba a medical system that is, that is, you know, is the envy of people all over the world. People who say that communism killed people, it's like, no, communism stopped the body counts. That's what it is. Communism stopped the daily body counts created by capitalism. And people don't understand that at all. You know, in Venezuela, I walk through neighborhoods. The British Empire's body count is something not to be believed. Yeah, indeed. Uh, you know, uh, I walk through neighborhoods where, you know, every home had been built by an interest-free loan provided by the socialist government. Before that, people lived in shacks without running water and electricity. You have no idea. People have absolutely no idea. And when people, when these anti-communists want to give us this, oh, Stalin killed, it's like, it's like they shouldn't be talking, right? If they're going to talk about people dying because of a system, if you applied the same logic, if you applied the same logic, if they apply the same logic to their system, it would be unbelievable. All right, next question. Catholic social teaching. Um, well, I think the Catholic social teaching has a very important value. The Catholic Church opposes capitalism. Right? It also opposes Marxism. They believe that Marxism, because it's a materialist ideology, and, and Marx did, you know, he was an atheist, denied the existence of God, uh, that they believe Marxism is contrary to Catholicism, but so is capitalism, right? They believe that capitalism and the system that puts profits over people is is not you know Sino-Soviet split is not is not um, is not consistent with Catholic teachings. And there's a long history, a very long history of Roman Catholics uh, who uh, who reject capitalism. There's many priests in Latin America who have stood up to capitalism, uh, and you know there's a whole history of the Catholic social teachings. I think there's a there's a lecture uh, given by Herbert Apothecker, a, a very famous historian who was a member of the Communist Party, about the Catholic Church and its social teachings. You can go listen to that. Uh, it's a great lecture that Herbert Apothecker gave at UCLA. Um, and yeah, I am a big fan of the Catholic social teachings. Now, you know, I personally am a Protestant. Um, I, I, I am Protestant. I do not accept uh, the Vatican. Um, and, you know, I, I have certain beliefs that are contrary to Catholic doctrine. And that it's important to, to, I mean, you know, well, that's a whole nother conversation. But that said, I Catholic social teachings is very important. And it's been essential. You wouldn't have socialism in Venezuela if it wasn't for the Catholic social teaching. You wouldn't have socialism in Nicaragua if it wasn't for Catholic social teaching. And in fact, in fact, the slogan of the Nicaraguan government is Christianity, socialism, and solidarity. So I have absolute admiration for all that has been achieved by the Catholic worker movement of Dorothy Day, uh, very important, very important uh, socialist in American history. So yes, I'm a big fan, big fan, despite not being a Catholic. Um, will I debate this person about patriotic socialism? Maybe, I don't know who you are. I mean, I've debated patriotic socialism before, uh, but I don't know who you are. I mean, it depends. I'd have to know who you are. I'd have to know if it was worth my time. I'd have to know if you were just, you know, somebody who's in, you know, going to insult me and cuss me out, or if it would be a real, honest, you know, good faith debate. I, I would consider it. I'm open to debating this person about about um, patriotic socialism. I just don't know who you are. So, you know, if you want to email me um, and talk about a possible debate, I'm open to it. I generally prefer to debate people. I want to debate people. Occasionally, there will be somebody who wants to debate me. I just don't think it's worth the time, right? But generally, I, I, I'm pro-debate. I like debating people. So there you go. Um, there you go. Next question. What do I think of Lyndon LaRouche? 
Well, I know the LaRouche people. They're good people. We don't agree on some things. I think that climate change is absolutely a reality. They maintain that climate change is a fiction. Well, that's a disagreement. And that's okay. We can disagree. The work they do around China is phenomenal. Uh, They are supporting the Belt and Road Initiative. They are demanding that the USA unfreeze Afghanistan's money to prevent the humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan. Excellent work. I respect a lot of the work they've done over the years, but there are disagreements. Uh, There are disagreements between us. And that's the thing. We can disagree, folks. We can disagree, right? You know, I said that I would be happy to work with folks who oppose abortion and gay marriage. We don't agree on that. I support gay marriage. I support abortion. But we can disagree. The LaRouche people, they're good people. They're dedicated. They're hardworking. Um, And a lot of what they say, you know, a a lot of their concepts, you know, on, on the surface level, they seem crazy. But the more you dig into them, there's actually a sophisticated argument for what they're saying. You know, I think a lot of people, they hear the stuff about the British Empire, they hear the stuff about Beatles music and all that, and they think, this is nuts, this is crazy. Well, I don't agree with all of it. I'll just be real. I'm a Marxist. They reject Marxism. I think they maintain Karl Marx was a British agent or something like that. I don't agree with that. Um, but, you know, when they make an argument, there's always a strong, they have, they, they've done their homework. They've done their research. Unlike most of the left in the United States, they're not, uh, they're not, um, they're not anti-intellectuals. They are people, I mean, trust me, those, they are studying every day. They're studying Albert Einstein. Uh, they, they, take, they take things seriously. I was in this communist group for years that had this anti-intellectual bent. Um, they didn't read anything. You know, it was always this, oh, you know, we hate people who read books. You know, I mean, I could tell you some horror stories, but, you know, the LaRouche people, they are not anti-intellectual and they take, they take their politics very seriously. They take their politics very, very seriously. Uh, They want to change the world. Um, And so I respect them. And we agree about China and the need for peace in the world. Um, You know, we agree on foreign policy stuff. Don't agree with some, a lot of their domestic policy stuff we don't agree with. But the need for infrastructure, that's another point we agree on. So I'm all about infrastructure. So there's points of agreement. There's points of agreement. There's points of disagreement. But I'm not a member of their organization. I actually did a stream. I'm good friends with Daniel, who's one of their people. And I said, Daniel, am I now or have I ever been a member of your organization? And he said, no, because I'm not. I've never been part of their organization. Um, And I said, am I involved in a secret conspiracy with you to take over the Communist Party? And he said, no, I'm not. No, I mean, I know them. I read their publications. Um, I don't agree with everything they say. But uh, some things they say I do agree with. And that's, that's how you should do it, right? I always say with all of these thinkers, not just with them, but with Marx, with Lenin, with Stalin, with Enver Hoxha, with Trotsky, uh, you know, we should study all of them, but blindly follow none of them. And that's my approach. The approach should be, how do we save the United States from capitalism? That should be the answer, you know, blindly follow none of them. Find solutions that work. Don't be a blind ideologue. Don't be an apologist, right? I, I love Malcolm X, but I disagree with him on some points, right? Um, I love Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., but I disagree with him on some points. I'm, you know, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was a big supporter of Israel. I'm not, you know, so we disagree, but I still think Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. made some amazing contributions. In fact, there's a whole section of quotations from Dr. Martin Luther King in our new book, Jesus is a Socialist. So you can disagree with people, right? And that's the thing. Some of the things LaRouche said, I, I just don't agree with. I'll just be honest, I don't agree with. Some of the things he said, I do agree with. Um, and the same with various important thinkers throughout the world. Um, so that that's that's what I think about that. Um, I, I respect the LaRouche people. A lot of them are my friends. Um, but every so often, I just have to say, guys, I'm not with you on this. And they know that. And they respect that because they're serious. 
if you're serious, and this is this this beyond the whole conversation we just had, if you're serious, you will find out how to cooperate with people, right? And that's why you can tell that all of these communist groups that are attacking me right now are not serious, right? If I was a serious communist group and I was thinking about actually moving the country towards socialism, there was some guy on YouTube who's got well over 200 people watching him live, thousands of people listen to his streams, thousands of people buy his books, and he wants to work with you, I would say, okay, I would sit down with him and I would find where we agreed and find a way to cooperate. But that's not what they do. That's not what any of them do. Not the RCP, not the ISO, not the XYZ or the QWH. That's not what they do. Oh, no, no, no. They immediately see me as a competitor. No, don't listen to Caleb. Listen to us. Oh, he's wrong. He's wrong on this point. Oh, he's fascist. And that's how you can tell they're not serious. They don't really want to get anything done. A lot of these communist groups, I'll just be real, it's somebody's ego trip. It's somebody having an ego trip, all right? It's one or two, and it's always a boomer, right? You'd think there'd be Gen X ones by now, right? It'd be a new generation. There'd be some Gen Xer who was like, you know, protesting during the AIDS crisis, and he'd have a personality cult. But it never is. It's always a boomer. Always a boomer. Almost always a boomer. And, you know, the group is their little ego trip right? And it's their place to feel special. They're the one true socialist. All the others are the fakes. And they have their newspaper and they write their books and everyone should listen to them. And it's sad. It's really sad. It's really sad. And I've been largely disappointed by the socialist movement. I have. I have been very disappointed by the socialist movement. Um, but that's okay, right? We're in a new period, right? If, I mean, but trust me, I mean, if any of these communist groups were going to take over and come to power, they would have like at least grown a little bit in the last decade, okay? I'm just being real with you. Out of the movement to the masses. Out of the movement to the masses. All right. Social chauvinism. How does it apply to the left? Well, social chauvinism is a concept that Vladimir Lenin talks about excessively. Vladimir Lenin in his writings, if you read Lenin's essay, Imperialism and the Split in Socialism, he talks about the socialists who supported World War I. And he talks about how they sold out the working class and sent them to die for capitalist profits in the war. Um, you know, he talks about he talks about the social patriots and and how there was a section of the socialist movement that was bought off by the imperialists and supported war. That has nothing to do with saying you love your country and overthrowing capitalism will make a better country, right? So you know, social chauvinism is supporting imperialism. It's the whore of Babylon. It's what I was yelling about earlier, right? Who preach socialism but practice fascism to preserve capitalism for the bosses. That's what social chauvinism is. Um, and it's a big problem. And Lenin exposed it better than anybody in his essay, Imperialism and the Split in Socialism. It's a 10-page essay that Lenin wrote. Go read Imperialism and the Split in Socialism. He talks about the roots of social chauvinism. There you go. Next question. Uh, Jay Sakai uh, is an intelligence asset. I can't tell you that. I have never met Jay Sakai. Nobody knows who Jay Sakai is. Who is Jay Sakai? No one knows. He's just a guy who wrote this book called Settlers that says we can't have a mass socialist movement in the United States because all white people are inherently reactionary. Um, and the, the socialist movement in the United States is racist because it wanted to raise people's living standards. And it, and it smears William Z. Foster and lies about what he said about the great steel strike. And uh, takes a, I mean, you know, I don't know. You're asking me, is Jay Sakai an intelligence asset? How would I know that? Nobody knows that. 
Nobody knows who Jay Sakai is. Settlers, the mythology of the white proletariat, this book that says it's hopeless, we can never have a socialist movement, and that you should go be a woke foot soldier for the biggest bourgeoisie in their battle to demolish the domestic economy of the United States so that the USA can be demolished into the global open financial system of imperialism. This book that gets waved around that says you're not allowed to be a fighter for the working class because it's racist, and it uses Marxist language to try and make that case. No one has any clue where it came from. There's a couple radio interviews. There's this photograph. No one has any clue who Jay Sakai is. So I don't know who he is. You don't know who he is. However, I do know that if I was the CIA, if I was the FBI, and I was worried about you know the working people of the United States rising up and becoming anti-imperialist and building a working class movement to oppose imperialism, I would love that book. That book's the best thing, the best. I mean, it's great, right? Convince people who are already slightly alienated, right? Which if you're a socialist in the United States, you're gonna be alienated from society. Convince people that are already slightly alienated that there's no hope and that they need to help help the ruling class impoverish uh, the white working class of the United States. Uh, you know, I mean, that's it sounds a lot like, and also I will say, one of the biggest promoters of this settler's line, right? The idea that white Americans are all settlers, they're not really workers. Um, one of the biggest promoters of it is Ward Churchill, the Native American scholar Ward Churchill. I don't know if you realize it, but Ward Churchill has been a CIA operative for a long time. He's launched his career working with Russell Means, the leader of the American Indian movement, to engage in violent revolution against the Nicaraguan government, to help work with the CIA to fight the socialists of Nicaragua. And not only did Ward Churchill go to Nicaragua with Russell Means to engage in destabilization efforts against the socialist government of Nicaragua, he went further than that. And Ward Churchill wrote essays for academic journals explaining why it was okay to align with U.S. imperialism in Nicaragua. Ward Churchill did that. Ward Churchill glows like a light bulb, okay? Uh, he was pro-CIA in the Nicaraguan Contra War. He associated with Russell Means. He went to Nicaragua and made propaganda against the Sandinistas. Ward Churchill glows like a light bulb, and Ward Churchill runs this line uh, that, you know, the, the, he has the settler's line. He claims to be an anarchist. He doesn't call himself a Maoist, but he runs the settler's line. So it's just something to think about, but there you go. All right. What was the main difference between the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks? Well, the Mensheviks were a party of the old type. They did not believe in forming a democratic centralist organization. Lenin reorganized the party of a new type, a new type of political organization that would function more like a disciplined organization of people who gave the whole of their lives, uh, whereas the Mensheviks were more of a loose social democratic association. In 1903, there was a meeting in London. Vladimir Lenin pitched the idea of a party of a new type to uh, the people at the meeting. The majority of the people at the meeting accepted it. They were the Bolsheviks, the majority group. And the minority of the people at the meeting didn't accept it. They were the Mensheviks. The Mensheviks were more of a reformist party. The Bolsheviks were more of a revolutionary party. The Bolsheviks had a highly disciplined and you know, centralized organization, whereas the Mensheviks had a loose association of people who agreed with a variety of principles. Um, that was the main difference. Now, eventually, Lenin developed his theory of imperialism. Lenin uh, got to the point that he supported nationalism among the oppressed. Uh, he supported the right of oppressed nationalities to fight on the basis of their nationality. You know, Leninism developed its theory of the state um, and the need to form a new state. So, you know, Bolshevism eventually developed into a whole new form of Marxism. Menshevism was very much the politics of the second international. It was the politics of the British Labor Party, 
was the politics of the French Socialist Party, etc. All righty. The Amazon workers who died. The conditions in these Amazon warehouses are horrendous. I mean, anyone who's worked in them, they are hell houses. And it's awful. And I've interviewed Amazon workers. I did a story about their Black Friday protests. And I hear about these Amazon workers who perished. And Jeff Bezos, you know, was like a ghoul sucking their blood. And you look at the conditions and what went on. I mean, is this the new triangle shirtwaist fire? Is that what this is, you know? We all know about the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire in New York. Um, classical philosophy on Mao, right? Um, you know, we know about it. We know about it, and uh, the conditions at the Amazon workhouses, I mean, it's, it's horrendous. Jeff Bezos is the Henry Ford of our time. He really is. He is that ruthless capitalist who hates unions, who socially engineers his workers and has way too much power in the government. And yeah, I mean, it's horrendous what happened. I don't know what to say about it. I don't know what to, um, you know, I mean, you can talk about the conditions. You can talk about the union struggle, how it's a global union struggle. Workers from Bangladesh, workers from London, workers from here, from Georgia, from elsewhere. Bezos is the image of satanic capitalism in our time, if there ever was, and how he treats his workers. And I, I wish small business owners would team up with the labor unions to fight Bezos, right? Imagine if all these small business owners who are Trump supporters realize that Bezos is their enemy, he's putting them out of business, and he's also the enemy of the labor movement. And if the small business owners and the labor movement teamed up and worked arm in arm against Bezos, that would be awesome. I think that would be awesome, right? You know, a, a worker, petty bourgeois, united front against Bezos. That would be awesome. Awesome. All right. The Sino-Soviet split. Well, the Sino-Soviet split, it officially happened in 1961. Uh, the Soviet Union and China no longer had diplomatic relations with each other. Um, the official reason given uh, was that um, Khrushchev was Stalin's successor as the leader of the Soviet Union. In 1956, he gave a speech denouncing Stalin. Uh, it was called the secret speech where he accused Stalin of doing all kinds of awful things. And eventually in the next couple of years, Khrushchev developed what he called the, what the Chinese called the doctrine of three peacefuls, peaceful coexistence between capitalism and socialism, peaceful transition from capitalism to socialism, and peaceful competition between capitalist and socialist countries. And Khrushchev was telling workers in South Africa that they couldn't pick up a gun against apartheid. It was too dangerous. The United States had the atomic bomb. He was telling uh, workers in South America who were living under brutal U.S.-backed dictatorships that they could not engage in armed struggle to try and fight for their rights. Um, and on top of that, he was saying that the way socialism would defeat capitalism was the Soviet Union would just have a more efficient economic system and they would produce more goods and that would just prove socialism was better. And the capitalists of the West would go, oh, wow, the Soviet Union does have a better system. I guess we'll adopt it. And it was ridiculous. It was a delusion. Um, the reality was the Soviet Union was struggling to industrialize at a much lower level than the United States. The United States was already industrialized after World War II. The Soviet Union had just built itself up to an industrial level, had it all destroyed in World War II, and then had to rebuild it. So the idea that they were going to outproduce the United States is ridiculous. I don't know if you know this, but there's, you know, when I was a kid, they always said that Khrushchev, the leader of the Soviet Union, said, we will bury you. And that meant he was going to nuke us or something. No, it meant he was going to outproduce us with material goods. 
right? Khrushchev was going to produce more material goods. Socialism is more efficient than capitalism. That's true. But the Soviet Union was surrounded, it was under attack, and it was at a much lower industrial level. But Khrushchev came out with this idea that workers around the world in colonized countries who have no choice but to, you know, take up a gun and fight for their rights, right? Communists generally prefer a peaceful transition, but in, you know, military dictatorships and developing countries, it's not always possible. Khrushchev told all the revolutionary movements of the third world they had to stop fighting. He said that the way socialism will defeat capitalism is through peaceful competition, meaning they'll just make better goods. And on top of that, um, that, that, you know, for a long time, the United States and Western imperialism will exist. And for a long time, the socialist countries will exist and they'll just exist alongside each other and they won't bother each other. Well, that was bullshit, right? The, so the United States was not just going to let the Soviet Union and socialist countries exist. Uh, Peaceful competition was not going to be the road toward, you know, moving towards socialism. And on top of that, people around the world, colonized people have the right to fight for their independence. So it was just wrong in all kinds of ways. Mao Zedong was not going to accept it. Mao was just not going to accept it. Um, and on top of that, in Mao's own party, uh, there was a disagreement. There were the followers of Lu Xiaoqi, and the followers of Lu Xiaoqi didn't want China to go all the way to socialism. China did not maintain it was a socialist country up until the 1960s, right? Originally, China maintained it was what he called a people's democracy. It was a people's democracy, meaning it was, it was a, a country where a coalition of anti-imperialist and anti-fascist parties were in power. That's why it's the People's Republic of China. It was a people's democracy, right? And Liu Xiaoqi said that China was too poor to have socialism. And Mao said, no, China can have socialism. There was a fight in the party. The Soviet Union was supporting Liu Xiaoqi. The Soviet Union said China's too poor to have socialism. Mao said, no, we can have socialism and we can use socialism to make China wealthier. And so there was a fight in the Chinese Communist Party and the, you know, the Soviets were moving against Mao and supporting Liu Xiaoqi. And on top of that, Mao believed in third world revolution and the Soviet Union didn't. And so as a result, they cut ties with each other. Um, at first, China tried to be more revolutionary than the Soviet Union, right? Um, and But then, um, starting in about 1969, after the fall of Lin Biao, after the fall of Lin Biao, uh, you had the rise of the Gang of Four. And the Gang of Four, they started arguing that the Soviet Union was the main danger to the people of the world. And so 1969 was like the first big turning point. Angola, you know, China was aligning with uh, the U.S. imperialists in Angola against the MPLA. Uh, later, you had China supporting Pinochet when Pinochet came to power in Chile. And, you know, you had China supporting the Shah of Iran. And in the name of opposing the Soviet Union, China started pivoting toward aligning with the United States. And that was bad. They shouldn't have done that, I don't think. I don't think that was the correct thing to do. But they didn't really have a choice because the Soviet Union had cut them off and China was a very poor country and it was trying to develop. And if the Soviets weren't going to invest in them, they had to get the Americans to invest in them. So starting with Deng Xiaoping, uh, 1978, the reform and opening up, uh, they were able to get U.S. investment into China. Um, so that was the Sino-Soviet split. And, um, you know, I, I, look, there was truth on both sides, okay? There was truth on both sides. Ultimately, China was right at the beginning. The Soviet Union and Khrushchev's peaceful, you know, three peacefuls theory was bullshit. Was, you know, China was right to be firm in their anti-imperialism. However, starting in the late 60s with the Gang of Four, uh, China started to transit, started using anti-Sovietism to justify collaboration with the imperialists, and that I don't agree with. Um, so there you go. 
Um, generally, I take the Sam Marcy position on the Sino-Soviet split, which is, you know, initially siding with China, but not believing the Soviets became a new empire. That said, I think Sam Marcy, the founder of the Workers' World Party, was dead wrong in his support for the Gang of Four. Sam Marcy supported the Gang of Four. Uh, he mourned the fall of the Gang of Four in 1976, and that was wrong. The Gang of Four were murderers. Uh, the Cultural Revolution was a disaster. Anyone who lived during the Cultural Revolution, it was a nightmare. And getting rid of ending the Cultural Revolution was a great thing. So Sam Marcy, his international understanding of the Sino-Soviet split was correct. But his assessment of what was going on in China was delusional. And that, I mean, and that's why Sam Marcy was a Trotskyist, right? Sam Marcy thought that Trotsky uh, was correct. And, um, you know, the, the Cultural Revolution in China was very Trotskyist. And, um, you know, that was a mistake. But that's a whole other thing. But if you want to learn the history of the Sino-Soviet split, there's a very good essay. Um, you know, there's a very good essay by Vince Copeland. You can find it on the internet. It's on the Marxist Internet Archive. Vince Copeland... Um, you know, he wrote a, an essay, A History of Sino-Soviet Relations, where he talks about how initially China supported the secret speech against Khrushchev. And um, it's not as simple. You know, Maoists, people that are just kind of cultural revolution fans that love Mao, they don't understand the Sino-Soviet split. It was much more complicated than people make it out to be, right? You know, people who just want to be Khrushchev good or Khrushchev bad, Stalin good, Mao good, Deng Xiaoping, they don't understand it. Right, and that the the the, the Sino-Soviet split, China-Soviet relations during the Cold War, there were many twists and turns and developments. Okay, and that's a very important thing to understand. That you know that that China was trying to develop. You know, there was not a single steel mill in China before the communists, and they built the steel mills of China. They built the power plants of China. They raised people out of poverty, but they struggled, and you know there were setbacks along the way. But since the Chinese Communist Party came to power in 1949, China has been getting wealthier and wealthier and wealthier, right? I don't know how anyone in their right mind can say communism doesn't work. What was China like before the communists came in? Oh, what is China like now? So how does communism not work? I'm, I'm, you know, when people say, oh, the Soviet Union, communism doesn't work. What was China like before? What was the Soviet Union like before the communists? What was Russia like before the communists? What is Russia like now? Um, hmm. you know, who built the power plants of Russia? Who wiped out illiteracy in Russia? Who built uh, the world's largest electrical power plants, the world's largest steel mills? Who created the Russian, the vast Russian oil production apparatus? I mean, I don't know how these people can say this. I mean, you go, I mean, you go to Russia, look at all the stuff that communism built in Russia. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. Look at how much Stalin is still loved in Russia for his achievements defeating the Nazis. Who invented space travel? Who launched Sputnik into outer space? I don't get how anyone can say communism doesn't work. You can say communism in the 20th century had problems. That's true. You can say that communism has violated human rights. That's true. You can say there have been times where economic mismanagement, like, you know, for example, uh, during the, um, during the uh, what do you call it? The, the Great Leap Forward or during the, you know, the, the, the famine in, in Ukraine in the 1930s where mismanagement of the economy cause problems. You can say that. But if you say communism never worked anywhere, you are just wrong. You are just wrong. And this is why I have no patience for Trotskyites. Because my whole life, it has been beaten into my head. Communism never worked anywhere. Communism never worked anywhere. And there are so many dumb socialists in the United States that are convinced that they can just go, oh, that's true. 
but I've invented this new type of socialism in my head, so it'll work. You sound like an idiot if you say that. That is not a working class argument. That's some petty bourgeois middle class. I have my own ideas. I have my own idea. You know, that is that is the worst, that is the worst, you know, thing. And working class people don't want to hear that. When working class people hear that communism failed everywhere it's ever been tried, they think communism sucks. Well, communism didn't fail everywhere it's ever been tried. That's not true. Communism made Russia and China into superpowers. Communism invented space travel. Communism industrialized two great countries. Communism made Libya, at one time, the richest country in Africa. So uh, people who say communism didn't work, they're, they're talking about just complete and utter fiction. And if we can't stand up to that, if we can't get up and say, that's wrong, if we can't challenge these lies, we don't have anything to stand on, right? You know, if you want to be at your university and you want to go write an essay for Jacobin about how you have the true socialism and all the socialism that ever happened is just a bunch of fake stuff. And that's all great. And you and your Jacobin friends can go wank about Trotskyism or anarcho-syndicalism or whatever. But in real working class politics, communism, if it didn't work anywhere, we don't have a leg to stand on. Well, communism did work. It did work. It had problems. It had problems. It needed to adjust. The Soviet Union fell because they weren't able to adjust and change. But communism clearly worked. It clearly had big achievements. And they have lied to you. They have lied to you and told you it didn't. And if we can't challenge that lie, we've got nothing. We've got nothing, right? And I really wish that all these people who want to be like, oh, that's true. Yeah, communism never achieved anything. But I wish they would just shut up. They're the, they're the worst enemies of socialism. They don't help socialism anyway, in any way. Um, you know, so there you go. That's what needed to be said. All right, next super chat question. Um, classical Chinese philosophy and Mao. Well, Mao was heavily influenced by Confucius, who's the father of Chinese civilization. And he talks about it in the City Builders, We Are City Builders manual, the CPI educational manual, um, the actually, uh, we, we have an essay by Mao Zedong, uh, called, uh, talk on the question of philosophy. It's actually a speech that Mao gave. It's transcribed where he talks about the influence of Confucianism on his teachings. Um, Mao was heavily influenced by the Taiping uprising. I'm probably mispronouncing that horrendously. My Chinese, I don't speak Chinese. So, but there was a, a peasant war that happened about 30 years before Mao was born. Uh, that swept all of China, the Taiping Uprising. And Mao was heavily influenced by it. And when he came to power, he built a monument to it in Tiananmen Square. Um, so Mao was heavily influenced by the Taiping uh, Uprising, Taiping Rebellion, Martian Communist says. I don't know how it's pronounced, but he was heavily influenced by that. Um, and if you look at the teachings of Confucius, you know, Mao was very good at tapping in uh, to some of the anger uh, of Chinese youth. You know, there's a real emphasis in Confucianism about, um, about you know, the loyalty that one has, you know, that, that people are loyal to their government, um, that students are loyal to their teachers, that children are loyal to their parents. There's this concept of filial piety. And um, a lot of what Mao did was tap into kind of the resentment and the anger of, of Chinese teenagers. Teen rebellion was a huge part of Mao's, uh, Mao's political organizing methods. Mao was a high school principal at one point. He knew how to organize teenagers. The first essay that Mao ever published was about why it's important to have physical education in schools. Not physical punishment, mind you. He wasn't for beating children. Physical education, working out. Don't confuse the two. Big difference. Big difference. Mao was not into corporal punishment. He was into physical education, exercising. In fact, it was a tradition in China that goes back thousands of years 
that at the beginning of every school day, the kids in front of the school would exercise together. That's great. It's a great tradition, I think. And Mao loved that tradition. And I like that tradition. And I'd like, you know, John Brown volunteers and others to start doing that because it builds group cohesion. You get people together and they exercise together. They work together and it builds kind of a team spirit, a collective feeling, right? It's a way for people to give up their their individuality and and not have to be alone. That's what we all are in capitalism. We're all alone. We're all outcast and starving. And, And Mao's first essay was about how it's important to exercise with the kids. Before school starts, all the kids get out in front of the school and they exercise together. Mao loved that tradition. And uh, I think we should implement that tradition in our movement. I think it would be great if we all started exercising together. You know, I think that's a tremendous thing to do. And it's done in a lot of Asian countries, mind you. They do this in, in Taiwan. They do this in, in, um, they do it in Thailand. They do it in South Korea. They do it in North Korea. And, and they do it in some of the Bolivarian countries. When I was in Ecuador, I saw the kids all doing their karate together every morning. It's a great tradition. It's a very great tradition. Um, you know, and Mao, his first essay is about, you know, why, um, why, you know, they should exercise together in front of the, in front of the school. Um, you know, uh, Mao was very much influenced by Chinese society. One thing about Mao is he knew his people, right? I'm not Chinese. Um, I don't know China very well, right? I mean, I've studied what I, what I know about China. I've read in books. I've talked to people who've been there. I don't know China. Mao knew China like the back of his hand. He understood his people and he understood how to organize them. He was a political genius. Um, and Mao, I mean, is going to be remembered for thousands of years. The impact of what Mao did with his revolution is going to be, it's going to be, you know, it's going to go on. It's going to be massive. Um, but yeah, tapping into the, the anger of teenagers and their resentment, understanding the Confucian traditions and, and kind of working with the mindset of people of a civilization that had been developed based on Confucius teachings, um, you know, the Taiping uprising or the Taiping rebellion, all of this had a big impact on Mao Zedong thought. Absolutely. Um, there's no question about it. And actually, the Chinese Communist Party now, um, if I'm not mistaken, uh, they can point to some of Confucius's teachings that talk about the ideal of a communist society. I believe Confucius called it like the last day. What is it? The la- Yeah, the last day or the greatest day or something like that, that Confucius told his followers that there would one time be a society with vast abundance in which there would be no poverty, that Confucius, in his writings, there is a vision of a, of a post-scarcity society that you can find, which is really shows how ahead of his time Confucius really was. Um, but, you know, that brings me, that brings me to the final point I want to make here. Um, we're out of super chats, but that's okay. I'm going to make one final point, I guess, unless people have other things they want me to talk about. If you have something else you want me to talk about before I go, shoot me a super chat. Um, you know, I'll just make this final point unless there's something else that comes up. But, you know, the, Julius Caesar, who I talked about in the opening, uh, there was a lot, uh, there was a play written about him by William Shakespeare. And that play by William Shakespeare largely takes the position that Julius Caesar was becoming a dictator, that he was becoming a dictator and that it was necessary to kill him to preserve Roman democracy. It portrays the average Roman people as a bunch of barbarians. Um, you know, uh, you know, a vulgar mob of people uh, who are out of control. And, um, you know, Juli- the, the play is written from the perspective of the Roman elite, and they don't like Julius Caesar. And there's a particular line in that play that is very interesting, right? Um, and it's two of the assassins. I believe it's Mark Anthony. Mark Anthony and Brutus are talking in that play after they're talking about the killing of Julius Caesar. 
And Mark Anthony says to Brutus, he says, the fault is not in our star, in, the fault is not in our stars, dear Brutus, but in ourselves who are underlings. Meaning that the problem isn't with Julius Caesar. The problem isn't with dictators and kings. Uh, the problem is with everyday people who support them. And that is really an expression of liberalism when it really gets down to it, right? Is that, that at the end of the day, what Brutus is saying or what Mark Anthony is saying, at the end of the day, they don't really hate Julius Caesar. They hate the people. They hate the people who supported him. They hate the fact that the broad masses of people support populist leaders. And that's really, it's very similar to what's happened with, with um, you know, with, with Hugo Chavez in Venezuela. The right wing in Venezuela doesn't just hate Maduro. They don't just hate Hugo Chavez. They hate the poor people of Venezuela. Um, that's who they hate. Um, well, China books. That's who they hate. They hate the poor people of Venezuela. You know, in Nicaragua, the right wing doesn't just hate you know, uh, uh, Ortega and Murillo, uh, they hate the broad masses of people in Nicaragua. And when they say, well, the fault is not in our, in our stars, but in ourselves, who are underlings, that's an expression of liberalism as well. Because this is one of the big problems that we have. I'll just be real. This is one of the big problems that we have in the socialist movement, okay? I'll just be real with you. I said to you all, when I was talking about Julius Caesar, that a lot of people hear me ranting on here and they think that I think I'm going to be the next Julius Caesar, or I'm going to be the next socialist president of the United States, or I'm something like that. And I'm telling you, I'm not. I'm a guy on YouTube. I write books. I've started a think tank. I'm never going to be president. I'm never going to be leader of the United States. I'm not going to lead a revolution. I am a thinker. That is a realistic assessment of who I am, right? I know based on my life, on my own abilities, um, and my own history as a person, I know what I'm capable of doing. I'm capable of building a think tank. I'm capable of educating people. I'm capable of teaching people. I'm capable of bringing people together. I'm capable of spreading ideas. I'm not going to be elected to public office. I, I will not be elected to public office. I mean, never say never, but I really doubt it. I really doubt I would ever run. And I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to be some big leader of a, of, of a mass movement or something. I am an educator, right? I am a socialist educator. And that is a realistic assessment of who I am. And one of the big problems that we have in the socialist movement is that we people don't have serious assessments of who they are, right? We get, you know, this feeling, right? When 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 Brutus, when in in the play Julius Caesar, when Mark Anthony says, the fault is not in our stars, but in ourselves, who are underlings. What they're saying there, he's saying that the worst thing you could ever be is an underling, right? To be a follower of Julius Caesar is just an awful thing. To be a follower of, of Mao Zedong or to be a follower of Hugo Chavez or a follower of Daniel Ortega, that would just be the worst thing in the world, right? We have our own ideas. We hear this all throughout our society. I have my own ideas. I think for myself, right? The idea of being an, a quote-unquote underling, that's a derogatory term. The idea of giving yourself to a movement is considered to not be respectable. Everyone's got to be Superman. Everyone's got to be the leader. Everyone's got to be the hero, right? You know, that it's somehow, if you're an underling, you're less. And that's bullshit. That is a bunch of bullshit. That is a bunch of bullshit. We need all kinds of people to be part of our movements. And we got to get over this idea that everyone, and thank you, Lainey. Thank you for the super chat. Lainey is great. I did a great chat with her about, about her, her um, about Hardlines Media and all that. Check out Lainey's work. We got to get over this. Right? 
everybody can't be Superman. Everybody can't be the great leader. And there's nothing wrong with giving of yourself. There's nothing wrong with humbling yourself. There's nothing wrong with being part of a movement. And for this to actually work, we need people to recognize that. We need to get over this, oh, you know, who are underlings. There's, no, there's nothing wrong with being part of a bigger movement. Nothing wrong with it. You're not less of a person if you're part of a movement. You're not less of a human being if you admit, you know, I really like the teachings of Marx and Lenin. I really like the, the you know, I really like, uh, you know, the mass movement of Bernie. You're not lessening yourself. If you say, I want to be part of a bigger movement and a bigger idea, you're not doing that. In fact, you're proving that you're mature. You're proving that you're serious, right? You know, it's interesting. Sigmund Freud talks about this. When you're a baby, you think you're the most powerful person in the world. Did you know that? Because a baby just goes, Wah! and immediately they get fed or they get shaken or they get, you know, they get what they want or they get their diaper changed or whatever. Babies think they're the most powerful people in the world. Every baby thinks it's super powerful. But as you grow up, you start to realize, oh, I am not powerful. I am not powerful. And part of becoming mature is coming to terms with how not powerful you are. That's part of growing up, is you realize, oh, I'm not Superman. I can't fly. I am not, you know, the greatest, you know, the greatest genius that ever existed. I am not capable of, of running faster than an Olympic gold medalist. You come to terms, you come to terms with your own strength. It's not that you think less of yourself. It's not that you underestimate yourself, but you also don't overestimate yourself. You come to recognize your own limitations. You recognize what you are capable of and what you are not capable of. You have an accurate assessment of who you are. And I just told you my assessment of who I am. I believe I am capable of starting a think tank, and I have. I believe I'm capable of having a strong YouTube channel, and I have. I believe that I'm capable of, um, I, by, by shake, I meant rock, like rock to sleep. Come on, camel. I, it's not, I didn't, I never shake a baby, obviously. I meant like rocks to sleep. I'm not a parent, thank goodness. Uh, don't, don't, don't misinterpret what I said. I know what I'm capable of. Um, and, you know, AA is, has a similar message and saved my life, says howdy friends. Well, I talked earlier on here about how a lot of what I say kind of hits home with people who've struggled with addiction and that that makes sense. But you have to recognize, you have to get an accurate assessment of yourself. That's a really important thing to do. You have to get an accurate assessment of yourself. And this idea that we get that what, you know, what what Mark Anthony says to Brutus in the Shakespeare play, you know, the fault is not in our stars, but in ourselves, dear Brutus, uh, who are underlings. We don't want an underling. Look at that mob of underlings, those poor people who are rallying around Julius Caesar. Why don't they think for themselves? Oh, why don't they, you know, why don't they run for office? I mean, it, it's a snide. It is a snide, snide attitude. There's nothing wrong with being part of a mass movement. There's nothing wrong with, with having an accurate assessment of what you're capable of. I want you to maximize your potential. I want to help you realize that you are capable of things you didn't even realize you were capable of. I want you to make great, massive achievements for, for socialism. I want you to, to go out and change the world, and I want to help you find your own potential. And that's what I want to help you do. Um, but, um, at the same time, you know, I, I urge you to, at the same time, you know, don't go to the other extreme, don't go to the other extreme. And that's one of the problems, right? You know, you know, Shakespeare's play, Julius Caesar, right? It's not about Julius Caesar, obviously, you know, William Shakespeare never went to Rome. William Shakespeare did not live 
thousands of years before a thousand years before he was born. Um, William Shakespeare's play, Julius Caesar, is about the human psychology, right? It's about the human mind. And one of the things in the play that comes across is that a lot of the same people who killed Caesar mourned Caesar. And it's about the human relationship with power and authority, right? When you're a kid, you love your parents, right? Because your parents provide for you. They put a roof over your head. They guide you. But you also hate your parents because they discipline you. They control you. They have power over you. So every child both loves and hates their parents, right? And it's the same thing with the state, the government. We all love the government, you know? We do, right? You can say you don't, but you do, right? If you walk the street tonight without getting attacked and beaten up and robbed, you love the government, okay? If you walked on a government-paved road, you love the government, all right? And as much as you don't want to admit that, you love the government. You also hate the government. You hate the government because it taxes you. You hate the government because it wages ugly... We love and hate the government. Uh, roots of anti-Semitism. Okay. You love and hate the government, right? And this is the, the, the contradiction. Uh, um, this is the contradiction of, of human existence. We all love and hate the government. We all love and hate our parents. We all love and hate authority. And the play Julius Caesar by William Shakespeare is largely exploring that relationship. The Romans hated Julius Caesar and they loved Julius Caesar. That's really what it was getting at. Okay, so I got two more super chats here. First question, books about Mao's China. Okay, so you want books about what life was like when Mao was alive, not modern China. Modern China is something different. You want books about Mao's China. There's a lot you can read, all right? Books about Mao's China, uh, one book I would recommend is called The Long Revolution by Edgar Snow. Edgar Snow was the first journalist to ever interview Mao. He was also the last journalist to ever interview Mao. And in, I believe, in 1972, 73, there was a book he published called The Long Revolution. And it is his interview with, uh, his final interview with Mao. But they take him to a hospital in China and he learns about their acupuncture programs. Uh, they take him to a university in China. Um, and Edgar Snow walks through modern China and then he concludes the book with an interview with Mao. And it's a very good read, The Long Revolution by Edgar Snow. Um, another book that is interesting is called Fan Shen, and it's about land reform in China. And it's written by William Hinton, who was an American who lived in a Chinese village right after the communists came to power in 1949. And he saw how they redistributed the land to the peasants. And he wrote this book called Fan Shen, which means turnaround, the great turnaround. It's a Chinese word. I'm probably butchering it. But it's F-A-S-S-R-F-A-N-S-H-E-N, Fan Shen. And it's about how land reform was conducted in a Chinese village. Um, and it's very interesting. Fan Shen, that's a good book. Um, another book I would recommend about life in Mao's China. It's an interesting book for sure. I read it as a teenager. It's written by a member of the Italian parliament named, uh, I, I don't remember her how to pronounce her last name, but Maria Masioshi, Maria something. It starts with an M. It's called Daily Life in Revolutionary China. It's an Italian member of parliament who's a communist. She goes around China. She goes to a port where the workers are studying the teachings of Hegel and learning about dialectics. Uh, it's called The Port of Dialectic, and that's the name of the chapter. She goes to an elementary school. And she has a chapter called Mao's Children. She goes to a rural village where they've redistributed the land. She goes to different parts of the country. It's called, it's called Daily Life in Revolutionary China. I would recommend that book as well. Um, now, obviously, the problem with a lot of these books is they were written during the Cultural Revolution. So they kind of gloss over the problems of the Cultural Revolution. That's a problem, obviously, right? So if you want to learn 
how China has changed since then. I recommend, uh, you know, When China Rules the World by Martin Jakes. That's a very good book. Um, you know, there's a number of, of, of other books, but there's a very good book on China's medical system. It's called Away with All Pests. And it's an American doctor, or I think it's a Canadian doctor, that goes to China and he studies their socialist medical system. That's very fascinating. Um, you know, there's a great writer named Agnes Smedley. Agnes Smedley. And Agnes Smedley uh, embedded herself with the Red Army during the revolution. Um, and she wrote a number of very good books, China's Red Army Marches. She was a very famous feminist from the United States. She wrote a memoir called Daughter of the Earth. Um, and she was a famous feminist who moved to China and embedded herself with the Red Army and wrote some beautiful books about the Red Army. Um, so there's a lot that was written about Mao's China. Um, Agnes Smedley, um, you can read Edgar Snow, Red Star Over China, Fan Shen uh, by William Hinton. I think, um, you know, there's a lot that's been written, a lot that you can read. Uh, Roots of Anti-Semitism. That's interesting. So I think Joe, uh, shout out to you, Joe, who asked the question. Joe was talking about, you know, the fact that the, the main, one of the main anti-Semitic documents in history is called the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. And it was a, a, a hoax. It was a, a, a lie written by the czar, right? Or it was not really written by the czar, but written by like the czar's secret police. Um, Roland Barr's Socialism of Chinese Characteristics Guide for Beginner. Oh, okay. That's a good book. I'll have to check it out. You know, the czar's secret police or whatever, they wrote this fake book called The Protocols of the Elders of Zion. And it was an anti-Semitic tract that said there was a secret conspiracy by Jews, and it's awful. And you read it, the book is a defense of feudalism, basically. It, it, basically, it says, like, part well, step one of the Jewish conspiracy is to give everyone the right to vote. You read it, and you want to say to people, so should people not be voting? Like, I mean, it's, it's a, an anti-Semitic tract, um, you know, but anti-Semitism, anti-Semitism I believe it was August Babel, who was a famous German socialist. He said, anti-Semitism is socialism for fools, right? People that aren't smart enough to understand that capitalism is a system based on profits, that, you know, and you know, the people who can't comprehend that, you know, they have this kind of caveman attitude. There's a group of people, and they're from another race. They got old money. My race don't have money. I want my race to get together and beat down their race. Yeah, rah, rah. Right? It's stupid bigotry, tribal thinking. Me race not have as much money as other race. Me race get together and kill other race. Then me race have money. Yes, anti-Semitism is idiotic. It's, it is dumb thinking, right? And, and if you read any of these anti-Semitic tracts, they all get down to anti-communism, right? Communism invented by Jew. It is, it's idiotic, primitive thinking, right? Um, and that said, if you want to get really into the roots of anti-Semitism, it comes from the fact that in feudalism, most people don't ever have money, right? Money in, in feudalism, your typical peasant never touches any money, right? In feudalism, feudalism, you know, the peasant works the land. He never has any money. The noble, he gets the, the you know, the fruits of being the landowner. He never has any money. The soldiers, they don't have any money. They're just taken care of by the king. But if you're going to have international trade in a feudal society, um, if you're going to have, you know, shipping, right? If there's going to be silk imported, if there's, you need somebody who handles money. And so in feudalism, just like you had a blacksmith who handled the metal, you had a, a, a bricklayer, a mason who laid the bricks. In feudalism, there was a special type of person who handled money. And because the Christian teaching did not allow lending money at interest, 
because Jews were not Christians. Jews were the ones who were allowed to handle money in a feudal society. Um, and it was part of feudalism, right? It was like a division of labor, but there was one ethnic group that because they were not Christian, but because they're in the Bible and stuff, they were allowed to not be Christian. They were assigned under feudalism the task of handling money. But then when the economy would get bad, the king would go, you know, hey, the problem is this and blame it on them. And then they, the people, you know, the peasants and the uh, the people of the country would get together and go and kill the people who handle the money because it must be their fault because the economy is falling apart. Right. And that's anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism was a built in feature of feudalism In feudalism. You have to have somebody handle the money. Everyone can't handle the money. Um, but, you know, when the economy goes wrong, you blame them. You blame the economy going wrong on them. And that's why the Nazis were so into anti-Semitism. The Nazis were trying to restore feudalism. They had the feudal mindset, right? They, you know, Hitler wanted to build the Reich, right? And they were into Nazi or into swords and castles and all of this. And so part of their, their nostalgia for feudalism was anti-Semitism, right? Um, and that anti-Semitism was a built-in feature of feudal society. And if you go throughout medieval Europe, you know, for, for hundreds of years, in place after place, there's horrendous massacres of Jewish people. Why? It's because the economy went bad and they had to blame it on somebody. You had to scapegoat somebody. Um, so they blamed it on the Jews. And then the Jews would all get you know, killed and they would burn the neighborhood the Jews live in and kill a bunch of Jewish people. And that was how they, they dealt with the rage that people felt when the economy was being bad. And anti-Semitism was a part of feudal Europe. But as feudalism broke apart, as feudalism broke apart, um, you know, uh, you had the, you know, you had the emergence of, you know, you know, capitalism, and uh, you can read. I mean, there was a change, and anti-Semitism was how a lot of the folks that were critical of capitalism but wanted to restore feudalism. It's how they understood the problems of capitalism, right? I mean, if you're a if you're an advocate of feudalism, you can't think the problem is the workers are oppressed and we need a workers' revolution. You can't think that. So you have to think, oh, capitalism means the Jews have taken over, right? I mean, that's, and that's kind of what, that's what, you know, the anti-Semitic, uh, you know, vibe from fascists largely was. It was an, a desire to restore feudalism and an understanding of the emergence of capitalism as, as blaming it on the Jews. So that's anti-Semitism and it's a problem and anti-Semitism has no place in our movements. No form of ethnic bigotry should ever have a place in our movements. I'll just be real about that, right? I'm sorry, if you're blaming the problems of society on one race or another, I don't care what race it is. If you think the problems in America are because of Muslims, if you think the problems in America are because of Mormons, if you think the problems in America are because of Presbyterians, if you think the problems in America are because of Lutherans, you're not a Marxist. That's not scientific thinking. And if you start blaming problems on ethnic groups or religious minorities, what is the inevitable conclusion of that? If the problem isn't capitalism, the problem is just some group or some race, what does that lead to? That leads to people going out and killing or murdering or persecuting that group or race in order to try and make things better. And so we got to fight against that. Any bigotry, right? Whether it's anti-immigrant bigotry, that's a big problem in our, you know, in our society now. They want to say all the problems are because of the immigrants. They took our jobs, you know. Uh, people want to, you know, say Muslims are all terrorists. Muslims are all terrorists and they have their foreign religion. You know, whatever it is, whatever, any kind of bigotry is not Marxism. Period. Period, right? If you're pushing ethnic bigotry of any kind, that's not Marxism. If you're blaming the problems of society on an ethnic group or on a religious minority, you're not a Marxist. 
period. Um, now, I know there's going to be a million things I just said that will be taken out of context to prove that I'm anti-Semitic. I'm sure there's somebody watching this right now, one of my haters, and there's probably a million things I just said that they're going to like cram into one sentence and say that I'm a vile anti-Semite. And they're liars. They are liars and they're liars. Now, that's not to say I haven't made mistakes before. I've made some mistakes before. There's things I've said around the issue and, you know, I don't want to get into specifics. I've made mistakes before. I'll be real. I don't believe in ethnic bigotry of any kind, period, period, end of sentence. I don't blame, I don't blame society's problems on any ethnic group, period. And if you do that, you're not a Marxist. If you do that, you are not a Marxist, period, okay? And so there's a bunch of people now, there's a bunch of people who are going to take, and I, I understand, Joe, you're doing a great job. It's a great question. There's a bunch of people, I'm sure, that once this is over, they're going to have a clip of me doing my my voice. I'm going to go, oh, the problem is my, and they're going to think that I like really say that, and they're going to use this to prove. They will use anything against me, folks. They will. Somebody was on social media the other day saying that I support the Confederacy. Someone was on social media the other day saying that I support Ayn Rand. They will say anything. They are out to destroy me, and it has nothing to do with anything I've ever done. It's except the fact that I'm anti-imperialist. Because I've been to Iran a bunch of times, because I risked my life trying to bring aid to the people of Yemen, because I, you know, I've been to Venezuela, I've been to Nicaragua, because I work for RT, Russian media. They want to destroy me. They are out to get me. And I said this the last stream, I'll just say it again. You need to be clear, right? It's one thing if you don't agree with me about this or that, and that's fine. You're allowed to be here. I don't agree with the LaRouche people about a lot, but we're still friends. I don't agree with, you know, some people that are in the Communist Party, but, you know, that's fine. They can talk to me. They can be friendly with me. I don't agree with this group or that group. I got a good friend in New York City. I just, you know, I just met with him at McDonald's. He's a Trotskyite. That's cool. You know, we disagree over the Trotsky question. That's cool. You know, I, I will work with people I disagree with, Um, you know, but, but, these people that are out to destroy me, that are out to smear me, you need to stand up to them. If you're my friend, you need to say to them, you know, I don't agree with Caleb about blank, but that's a bunch of bullshit. He's not a Nazi. He's not a white supremacist. And you need to, you need to fight these, you need to fight back against these people, right? Because I mean, that, that is one demand I do make of people in this community. You have to, you have to stand up to this, this, because what I'm being subjected to is, is beyond the pale. I mean, I have never seen anything like this, right? I mean, they are, they are, they are vicious. So there you go. That said, um, that said, I think that we are now um, able to reach our conclusion. So I'm just going to end by saying this. A new upsurge in the struggle against U.S. imperialism is now emerging throughout the world. Ever since World War II, U.S. imperialism and its followers have been continuously launching wars of aggression. But the people of various countries have been continuously waging revolutionary wars to defeat their aggression. And while the danger of a new world war still exists and the people of all countries must get prepared, Revolution is the main trend in the world today. While the danger of a new world war still exists and the people of all countries must get prepared, revolution is the main trend in the world today. Be sure to give a donation to the John Brown Volunteers. Link is down below. We need your support. Uh, please send a donation. Um, I'll see you at City Builders Day, March 15th. I'll see you at our national gathering in Illinois. We need a government of action that will fight for, uh, for working families. Fusion City now. Onward, solidarity, and...